everybody, and welcome to Totally Tintin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Edger. And today we're going to be talking about the Calculus Affair. The Calculus Affair. L'Affaire Tournesol. Oh, very nice. So French. his name is Tournesol in uh, Trifon, French. Trifon Tournesol. Now, what does, uh, does Tournesol mean in French? Sunflower. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm not too sure what it's a reference to, whether he turns to the sun or whether maybe he is his head is full of seeds. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe, it, yeah, maybe it's slang term for something. A guy's a real sunflower yeah, in French. Yeah, it could be. Uh, yeah, I don't know all the. Well, he's, sometimes it's hard he's to lanky. find out. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah. I mean, a calculus is just a straight out science reference, I suppose. Not necessarily the funniest reference in the world. So, yeah, sunflower. I like it. Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, let's get off this rambling and tell <laughs> you what this true. show is about. Yeah, that was kind of. Uh... Before we start the show, let us ramble about something. Yeah, that's what our other show, Sneaky are, Dragon, is about. We're professionals. Yeah, if you want to hear us ramble, uh, the Sneaky Dragon podcast is probably the one for you. Uh, okay, so here's the here's the way the show works. I have never read the Tintin series of books before. I'm a professional comic book writer. I write the Simpsons and Futurama comics for the most part. and But I've had these books recommended to me for most of my... Uh, I was going to say adult life, but that's not true. Also, when I was a kid, and I never got around to reading them. Yet my good friend David Dedrick, I've read them all. I know how it ends. That's uh, I'm I'm a little ahead of Ian on this. I've read them my whole life. Well, not my whole life. I've read them since I was a young teen, and uh, I love Tintin and I love the art of Hergé. Right. So, uh, what so let's talk about it. So we're going to do that. So yeah. what happens on the show is we usually set up. Before we uh, talk about the story itself, uh, breaking it down page by page, uh, David provides some context as to where Hergé is in his life, where Tintin is. And then we will go, as I say, page by page through the story. So if you have not read the story yet, uh, we advise you to, well, we don't advise you to do anything. It's your life. Uh, if you want to read the story beforehand, because we're going to give you spoilers, mm-hmm. you can do that. If you want to be spoiled, hey, that's, that's up to you. That is freedom. That is joie de vivre. That's not what you want to be. It's je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi. It's come see, come saw. <laughs> it's all French words. Parapluie. That's right. It's, it's Frère Rejaca, Jante Alouette. <laughs> Blamange. Yeah, we've now, by the way, we are a Canadian <laughs> podcast, so we are legally required to use a certain amount of French every, That's true. every time. That's true. Now, Dave, let me ask you this before we get started. Did yeah. you read this one in French or English? I actually read this one in French. I don't I don't own this one in English, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Very but good. I actually, I shouldn't say that. I read it in English and I also read it in French. Okay, but this time around... But I don't have it with me. I only have English with me because I okay. don't own the book. Fair enough. All right. So uh, where are we right now historically with Hergé? What's going on? In uh, in that gentleman's life. Well, last time we talked a little bit about the formation of the Studio Hergé. And so, uh, as he neared the end of the uh, Explorers on the Moon, he was kind of finalizing sort of the most important uh, kind of, how would you say, kind of key members of the studios. And one of those was this cartoonist named Jacques Martin, who was... Uh, he was a cartoonist, most like just like Bob Dumour. They had a career before they entered the studios. Um Jacques Martin is probably most famous for his comic book, his character, Bandit City character, Alex. And he also did a, a very popular character who is a reporter and also a person who's investigating mysteries. I don't know if you've heard of that kind of character before, mm-hmm. a character named Lafranc. Okay. And, uh, so, but mostly he, mostly, is he a teenager? Uh, Lafranc is kind of an older, more like in his twenties, late twenties kind of a character, okay. not a teen, like, like Tintin. In his twenties. Very old. Very old. Very old man. Okay. I mean, older than Tintin. Understood. And, uh, and so he, uh, he actually tried to, uh, tried to get into Tintin magazine. He sent in his, his art and, and Hergé rejected it. So it just told him that it was too detailed 
uh, and that it, you know, he, he was sacrificing, uh, precision for, for the balance, the balance, the drawing, you know, so, and so that's probably kind of devastating. But he kept at it, and he uh, did this uh, Alex story called The Golden Sphinx, and Erdrich actually really admired it. And so he, he went to him and started actually just sort of using his drawing expertise uh, before even hiring for the studios, for instance. He probably drew the cars in the chase sequence in the desert in Land of Black Gold. Mm. Um, he most likely, particularly most likely, drew the Buick, which apparently Erge had some trouble with, and just said, "You draw it," and just gave him the pages, and he he drew in the the Buick and those pages. Um, so, the thing is, is that you know when he had Bob Demur, he had a perfectly able assistant. Like Bob Bob Demur was like a workhorse of workhorses, and not only that, apparently without an ego, like apparently he could just work and did not demand or even feel like he was owed any credit for the the amount of work he did on any any of the Tintin books, for instance. The, the re, the revisiting of Land of Black, or sorry, of the Black Island in the 60s when the publisher, the British publisher demanded all these changes to it. Right. Most of the drawings in that were done by Bob Demur. You know, he just sort of took what Hergé had already created and Hergé probably did not feel like doing it for a third time and also didn't feel like drawing Tintin anyway. So he just said, you know, Bob, you do it. And so Bob just took all that. He went to England, you know, did some research and then basically redrew the entire story with some help from Hergé. But mostly it was Bob Demur who did that book. And uh, so so when he had Demur, he had someone... The, what he was looking for when Jacobs left, in a way, was someone who was his equal as a draftsman. Uh, who, but who could, unlike Jacobs, could subsume himself into the kind of mechanism of the studio, which Bob Demur was perfect at that. And, you know, so he became the sort of indispensable part of the studio. But... What Hergé also needed was someone who's kind of the opposite side of that coin. So one side you have this kind of tireless workhorse who just went along with everything you thought was good, you know, that he should do, and he just did it. And so what he needed was someone like Jacques Martin. And so when Jacques Martin came, what he was, was he also kind of filled the role of Jacobs, but he was someone who could act, once again, as Hergé's equal, but, you know, what Hergé really wanted was someone who would be satisfied without credit for his right. work, right? And so that's what Jacques Martin was. So he came in. And he kind of learned very early on. When he came in, he actually was given the assignment of finishing uh, Josette and Jocko's story, the last story called The Valley of the Cobras. About 25 pages had been finished by Hergé. And basically, he gave it to Martin and said, you know, could you, you just finish drawing it for me? And so Martin, basically, they both worked on the story and Martin did all the drawings for it mm. and finished it off. And it was all done for publication. And then he said, you know what? I'd love my name on the book. And Hergé said, you know what? You are a hired hand. And you do not get to have your name on the book. And Casterman said the same thing. You're just a hired person. You're an employee. You're not so we went have to your... Casterman afterwards? No, he just said to both of them. You oh, know, okay. And both, both of them said no. Casterman said no, and Hergé said no. All right. And because uh, that was not what he wanted. He didn't want people who wanted to have their name. He was, They were working, to, in his mind, they were working for Studio Hergé. They were paid by him mm-hmm. to follow his directions. Mm-hmm. And what they created was what he wanted. And therefore, he was the creator of, you know, and the guiding hand of what they did. Sure. And so just the same way that Walt Disney's name is on Walt Disney. Jim Davis is on every Garfield, but I don't think Jim <laughs> Davis has lifted a pencil in many a year. Many a year. And yeah, the same with, I mean, you can say that about a lot of people. I know that, for instance, Mark Walker, you know, he did three or four strips at a time, but he had like a huge, not a huge staff, but he had a writing staff of people yeah. that worked on his strips and provided him with gags and stuff like that. And when you see, uh, you know, Matt Groening's signature on every cover of Simpsons of Futurama comics, you know he drew every one of them himself. 
Yeah, and wrote them as well. I, I hear. Well, the inside does have credits for that, but the <laughs> but the covers just have one one name on them usually. Okay, yeah. which is different. That's how it used to be with Archie, but now it has right. You know, whoever predict, drew that particular cover. You know, so I was looking at the grocery store yesterday, and there was a Dan Parent cover. Dan Parent's been on Snooky Dragon, so of course I'm happy to see his art. And I, oh, Dan got a cover. Good for him. Uh, and so, like, so Jack Martin, he actually trained as an engineer, and he came from an aviation family. And so, but he really became interested in drawing because he read Tintin. So right between the broken ear and the black island was sort of this sort of moment of, of clarity for him. We were talking about this before the show started. So he had this moment of, oh, this is what I want. This is totally what I want to do. I want to follow this person. Right. Erge, I want to do what he does. And I want to be as great as him. And so, you know, it was a real honor for him to become a member of the studio when he finally, finally did. Uh, like I said, his initial s- submission, though, was, was uh, yeah. turned down because... Or she felt it was overworked. But that's it, not the worst note to get. Not really, Because no. you can pull back. And, and that's yeah. a young person's problem when you see mm-hmm. a young person's art. Uh, it's full of too much detail because you don't have the confidence and you haven't streamlined your style down yet. That's, that's very, very common. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you can, you can subtract. It's hard to get better. Yeah. I mean, you can, but it's way worse to be told, you know what, you're being too good. You need to pull it back a little bit. Right. And I would agree. Having seen some of the art from that time, it's more in the style of, uh, of say, um, oh, no, his name's out of my mind, but let's just say an Alex Raymond drawing, drawing Buck Rogers okay. or Prince Valiant. Sure. I uh, can't think of the artist of that off the top of my head for some stupid reason. Oh, I feel bad that I can't think of that. And either. he's Canadian. Ugh. Harold Foster. There we go. Oh, Thanks. gosh. I feel so I was going right to the reference <laughs> library there. Uh, so Martin was the first. He was hired to contribute to the Voir and Savoir series, the Look and Learn series. So, because he was so good, because of his engineering background and his interest in, in mechanics and stuff like that, he was actually really good at drawing cars and planes and things like that. And so he took, he started doing that. And then, uh, and finally, in mid-53, Hergé asked him if he would join the studios, which is not what he really wanted, necessarily. I mean, he wanted to be in Tintin magazine. That was an honor. But he kind of wanted to be his own man. He right. valued his independence as a cartoonist. He had a successful series with Alex. He didn't really need to work for the studios. So he was kind of like, no, I don't even think about it. So I actually thought about it for six months. And then he came back to Erge and he said, listen, I will work for you. Uh, but you have to also hire my, my employees, my own assistants, which Erge didn't want to do. So Erge was kind of like, well, let me think about it. And so then he came back and he said, okay, I will. And so that's actually how Roger Leloup, uh, who later became quite famous for his, uh, uh, series of, of graphic novels, Yoko Tsuno, this, uh, Japanese character, this, uh, little, I don't want to call her a girl, but this young woman. Yeah. Uh, and they were very science fiction stories, like very much. And what Roger, Roger Leloup's, I want to call him Roger, but Roger Leloup's, uh, his speciality or his particular area of interest or his focus in Tintin was just that, was all kinds of mechanical drawings. So things like the tanks in the calculus affair or airplanes, cars, car chases, stuff like that. That was his particular forte. And so he was kind of, that was his thing, you know. So when he had that to draw, Bring a Roger. He'll do that. He can do that without thinking. Yeah, he left. I think he left in '69. So he worked there for quite a while. So he started in '54, and left in '69. But we can we can talk about that a little bit more. Uh, so yeah. So Martin officially joined the studios uh, January the first, 1954. So just a few days after the Explorers on the Moon was finished, he he joined. And now instead of Moore's role as a facilitator, Martin's role was that of a foil. So he was there. So for Martin, story structure was key. 
Like he just felt like that was if as long as you had a good story, everything else would fall in place. The drawings, your 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 thumbnails, everything would just kind of follow a really strong story. And so he wasn't afraid to criticize Hergé if Hergé kind of wandered off what he considered off the path, you know. And he also had a different sense of humor than Hergé. So he didn't actually appreciate Hergé's sense of humor that much. He didn't like the headbanging and the kind of more... He didn't mind slapstick, but he didn't like he didn't like absurd slapstick. He wanted to have a, a some sort of mechanical reason to be in the story. Right. And so I kind of... So he felt like that Hergé was too gag-happy as well. And like he didn't like so many gags occurring per every page because he felt like it took away time from the story because you wanted the story to be moving forward. You didn't want to keep stopping to go through these series of gags or even of our elaborate gags. And so I want, I kind of wonder if maybe it's Martin's influence that limits the Thompsons to basically three pages of, oh, okay. of the story. Yeah. And just the sense he said, you know what? We don't need all this business. Let's just keep them there. Keep them, you know, keep them in a couple little cameos, you know, because we have lots of other stuff happening. We have the captain. If you have the captain, you have all the, the, you know, all the business you need. Now, Hergé, to be fair, I mean, he was demanding. He was an incredibly precise person, but also incredibly patient. That was probably the, the, uh, his, um, characteristic that most of them are, remember. Like, there's this, uh, one time Martin gave him this, pa- this page and said, you know, can you look at this? It's really important that you get, you know, look at this and approve it. It's, it's, and Hergé took it from him and put it in the drawer. He says, I'll look at it in six days. And it won't seem as important then. Because <laughs> to him, you didn't want to rush things. Yeah. And he felt like, you know, for him, by that point in his career, after spending so long working to deadlines in newspapers and stuff like that, he felt like, let's not get too wrapped up in deadlines. Let's take our time and let's make sure that what we're doing is right and not just quick. Nice. So he also was very, uh, you know, he treated them very well. He, they were his employees, but he treated them as friends, as colleagues. He did not lord it over them. He did not treat them. You know, he didn't mention the fact that they were paid employees of his. That's not something that he talked about. Every day at five o'clock, they stopped and had tea. He had very, he loved the British idea of tea. Mm-hmm. And so every day between four and five, you stopped and everyone in the office all sat around and had tea and they all talked with each other and had a little time together nice. before going back to work and finishing their day. And that was something that he always did. And it was very important for him to have that time, you know, even. What was their work day? When did they end? Probably. Well, I guess when their time was finished, when they felt like going home, I guess. I don't okay. think, I don't think anyone had like a regular time. It wasn't like a nine to gotcha. five kind of a job. Yeah. Yeah. The other important thing that he did for them was that, um, both Bob Dumour and Martin were given the space they needed to do their own projects. So for instance, even while Martin was working with, um, Hergé in, uh, Studio Hergé, he still managed to complete, you know, 13 albums during the time he was there. He left in, I think, 72. Mm-hmm. So during that time, he still was producing pretty, uh, Actually, with more prolifically than than Hergé was, he was releasing album basically every year, whether it was Lafranc or or Alex, he was releasing these albums. Some of them he just wrote, like Lafranc. I think he drew the first one, and then that was he found it was too much to do both and also do Hergé. So he turned over the drawing duties to other people. Bob Dumour drew one, which caused one of the weirdest things I think in in the in the in the studios, which is that. Hergé was fine with them working on projects, but he didn't like them working together. So he actually didn't mm. like Bob Dumour and Martin working together. And I don't know why that was. Whether he just felt like they were spending too much time on one project, and so they were neglecting... Like, he felt like they couldn't... You know, it was okay if the one was working on something, and the other one had time. It was still, you know, had some focus on the studios. But he maybe felt like both of them were focusing on one project. They weren't... They didn't have enough focus on the stu- on Hergé's studio. I don't know. Okay. I don't know his reason. Do you think reasoning. he was worried that they'd start working together and be competition at some point? Well, there were competition with him. I mean, Alex was a popular feature in, right. 
And, uh, and so he didn't mind that. And, you know, he didn't, I think the only person that he felt jealous of in that way was Jacobs with his success for, uh, with Blake and Mortimer. Mm-hmm. And that might, you know, and that might be just because to him, he and Jacobs were, were absolute equals. And so when Jacobs suddenly became this, you know, suddenly his position, his role in Hergé's life changed from friend and, and assistant and, you know, to suddenly to being a, an equal footing in terms of, of fame and, and, and skill and everything. I think for some reason that didn't, he didn't like that very much. And so, uh, you know, and then when Jacobs wanted to have co, co-credit, and he really didn't like that. I mean, that's basically what forced Jacobs out. But even then, there was already friction between them. And they were still friendly with each other. They never became not friends. It's just that there was always this kind of a thing between them that kind of an unmentioned sort of, I don't know, like a block of ice or whatever in their right. life. You know, like just that one little thing that kind of kept them apart in a way. But they still were friendly and still and still loved each other and still were, you know. When you see this book, there's even, once again, there's little mentions of, of Jacobs in it. Uh, this comes about the time that the studios were redoing Cigars of the Pharaoh. And if you look on the cover of Cigars of the Pharaoh, there's a, a casket that says E.P. Jacobini. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, that is also reflected in a, in a opera poster in, in the calculus affair. So they were still friendly with each other, just not this, just not the way that, just different than they were when they first gotcha, became yeah. friends. And yeah, his relation with Bob DeMoor and Martin was different again. I mean, he was their employer, even though he'd never lorded over them, never treated them as employees. I mean, this is a fact, right? In the end, that's who paid them their paycheck. And they got paid very well. They were remunerated, remunerated very well for their work yep. at Studio And he's Hergé. got final say. And he had, but he had a final say, yeah. 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 And if you wanted, you know, so Bob Dumer drew, it's called The Lair of the White, or The Lair of the Wolf, uh, the LaFranc story that he drew. And yeah, it's just, uh, that was it. I don't know why. It's, it's interesting. You know what? I wonder if it was, no, I don't know what it was. No, what's your speculation? I was going to speculate that because he did a really, really good Martin on that book, mm-hmm. like it's spot on, his Martin style in that book. And I wonder if Hergé didn't like the idea that people would know that Demore could do a really good copy of other hmm. of other cartoonist styles, and that might turn people's attentions back to Tintin and be, make them say, "Now what? Who's who's doing? Who's drawing Tintin now? Like who's doing this?" Because it really could just be Bob Demore. No, we don't know. I could see because that, that's yeah. basically what happened with some of the later stuff. Is it's, now again, it's Bob we are speculating here, and it's fine to speculate. If you feel like speculating yourself, I always like to mention this near the beginning of the show. We have a message board, uh, SneakyDragon.com. That's where we put up our episodes, and uh, we like to hear from you. So if anything Dave's saying outrages you, yes. and why shouldn't it, yes. uh, post post about it. Post as we uh, speak, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, <laughs> we true. will uh, we will. I will tell you how Dave feels about you um, feeling about him. I don't know what that <laughs> even means. Please continue. You will be feeling Dave. <laughs> so in 1954, just as he started the Calculus Affair, the studio was basically set for how it would be for, for pretty much from then on. Mm-hmm. So we had Bob Demore, basically first assistant in charge of backgrounds and decor, the pr- actual production of the book itself, like getting everything together, all the pages and stuff like that, keeping everything in, keeping everything on pace. Uh, he also created, he also drew Tintin and Snowy all the time for like licensed products and mm-hmm. things like that. So he was there from 1951 all the way to 1986, basically when the studios closed after Hergé's death, death in 83. Jacques Martin uh, was there from 54 to 72 uh, in charge of plot and characters. So, you know, he didn't draw the characters, but just in charge of, of like characterization and stuff like that and kind of, and then, um, artwork, once again, artwork and other projects such as Valley of the Cobras, the Foire and Savoir series. Roger Leloup, 
like I said, he had assisted on Alex from, from Artan providing background and, and doing colors. So now basically he just came in almost with the same position with, with Hergé, doing backgrounds, technical things. He was there from 53, not 53, 54 to 69. And then uh, a guy named Michel Demeray was there. He was the letterer. Uh, he was there from 54 to 86. And then Joel Azara, this is a made-up name. His real name was, oh, I can't remember, Lex, L-O-E-K or C-K-X. Very strange name, but mm. probably Flemish name. Uh, but once again, backgrounds and inking. And he wasn't there for like a long time. He was there from 54 to 61. He had a, his own kind of famous character, this uh, Japanese character called Taka Takata. And he uh, kind of concentrated, concentrated on that. He worked with uh, Peyo for a while, doing the Jackie and Celestin oh, okay. stories. So he kind of went from here to from here to there. And uh, like Taka Takata, he created with this uh, writer named Vik, who was also a cartoonist, but did a lot of like scenarios for Gideham for his Sophie series and stuff. And then uh, the last one would be Josette Beaujau, and she was uh, became kind of the head colorist for for Hergé. She was there from fifty three to seventy nine. And so she, there's lots of other uh, women who came and went, did, did colors, uh, notab- notably Fanny Vlamik, who became his uh, Hergé's second wife, was a colorist at Hergé Studios. But uh, yeah, she was there for a long time. And actually, she and Joelle Azara, they were an item. Mm. They were never married, but were companions for a long time. Now, by this point in his career, I think, I know I've been waiting for this moment since we started doing the show. Oh, this, this is an, exciting. This is an, what is, what is, is the moment? We're going to talk about Hergé's ideas of making a comic okay and his process because we've not really talked about that why have we not talked about it until now because i think i think it kind of comes it kind of rounds out the studio part of it so i don't want to talk about it until we got to the studios all right because it kind of is part of how they how he worked with them as well okay so obviously by this point in his career Hergé had pretty definite ideas of how he thought comics should work and how they should be put together i mean he had pretty pretty simple idea it's basically what it came down to was clarity. That was what he sought most. But for him, the the comic began with an idea. So no matter how he marginalized himself in the creative process with Tintin, with the studios, he was always the originator of the story ideas. If he wasn't, it generally didn't proceed very far because it was missing something, missing a certain something in the story. So for him, the idea came out of the moment, so like a chance event, something that he read or overheard. And he didn't want to... F- look at how he came to these ideas. He didn't want to examine how he created because for him, his inspiration, he was just afraid that once he knew how it worked, it would stop working. And then he had his dry spells as well. He had times where he couldn't think of any idea for, for, for Tintin, anything good that he felt was good, right. you know? So, you know, he drew, I think we talked about this before his, but you know, he obviously drew out of his love for detective fiction, adventure stories and silent movies. Those were basically what Tintin was made out of. And, for him, at its best, art is intuitive. Like he didn't want to think about it. He didn't think you could should think about it. He thought it's just something that you daydreamed into existence. That's how he. So you just arrived at it by instinct. And so we, you can see that if some you can read an imitation of Tintin, and there's lots of them from that time period. They could be very accurately drawn in a very Tintin-esque manner, but they lack a certain something. They lack that touch of Hergé, you know. And that was something that he didn't bring to it consciously. He unconsciously created those that feeling you know when he when he sat down so even when he's doing a story like the calculus affair where he has lots of people working on it with him the through line the essential part of the story is Hergé so for him step line step one was to find a storyline strong enough to hold for the course of the whole adventure 
so he wasn't happy with just a chase connected by a bunch of gags that to him was not a good story uh the story had to be believable and seem true it didn't have to be completely believable and you know it didn't have to be absolutely truthful but it had to seem true it had to have an element of truth in the story that you be believed in the story to the end and so when you had that story you he would write it down 20 lines at the most so he wanted like a very concise description of it then you rough out the story panel by panel page by page every page ends with a surprise his back you know obviously his beginnings as a, as a serialized story he could never quite escape that aspect of, of his stories I, mean, I don't think it's bad though no you know you always want to have something that makes people turn the page that's right that's right so because you're reading through it and it's like oh this is a good place to stop you probably are at some point going like yeah just a couple more pages and you look for the end point mm-hmm. and the, the trick is you make you make it so there's no end point yeah so you've got to turn the page because Tintin's about to explode exactly. you better go check this out or someone's gone oh that's right could be just that simple um and then it turns out to be the radio that's true. They do do that uh, yeah. gag in this one. Uh, now, with the, with the Red Sea Sharks, it's interesting because in that case, you know, he wrote out the storyline. Then everyone created their own thumbnails for the story separately from each other. And they brought it together and then they chose the best of what everyone had done and married that into one, one storyline. So this book was a bit different. This still kind of followed a pretty much an Hergé wrote everything out mm-hmm. and people contributed to his, his framework, you know. So next next step would be penciling. So now what they would do is they'd sketch sketch out the figures with minimal backgrounds, just on a piece of paper. Um, he used what was called Steinbach paper. So if anyone can find Steinbach paper, they can draw it just like Hergé did. <laughs> uh, the paper was cut to fifty one by thirty six centimeters, or okay. twenty by fourteen. Gotcha. With a working area of forty by twenty nine and a half centimeters. So he left a pretty big, pretty yeah. big margin. The working area was then divided into four strips or tiers. By nine and a half by twenty nine and a half, so three by three around three point seven four by eleven six inches. Gotcha. For all you people still following the antique imperial system up there. <laughs> now, what's interesting is the blank areas of the page. So the margins of the paper. The reason he left such a big margin is because he would constantly write and draw on there. He'd write down ideas, yeah. like gag ideas, or he'd work out how a person should be standing or how their at their you know their attitude in a particular drawing. He would sketch that out or he'd write down phone numbers yep. or addresses or people's names or lists of things maybe his maybe his shopping list whatever he just would constantly be noting in this and so all these papers are just full of all this marginalia it's kind now, of interesting now if you see the original art to the are those uh, did he erase those when no. he said that? no so those are still there yes because the next step mm-hmm. the next step was after um so those pages when they were being worked on in the studios they were passed back and forth from people to person to person right so everyone would draw and add their own part to the, to each of the stories. So everyone knew their kind of place that they that they that they had. So mm-hmm. now the final drawings. So what and what he would do, which is interesting, is that sometimes he would do twenty drawings of one panel or more or less, it just depended. Or he'd do and all over the page, every panel and every page would have tons of different variations of attitude, of slate adjustments, of placement, of, of angle. He would do all kinds of different drawings of it. And then he would choose the ones that he liked best. And the ones that he liked best, he would then, those would then be copied into kind of a master sheet. So, so that went onto, uh, onto a new page using uh, paper, this paper called Scheller Parole Paper. Once again, if you can find that paper, you can draw like Hergé. Mm, I don't think that's true. <laughs> now, this, this was the definitive page. By the way, if you can find a quill, you can write like Shakespeare. That's that's also true. <laughs> At the very least, like Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, he, so yeah. So what? Because what he wanted to do is he just wanted to hide all 
any kind of like sense of the skeletal background of it. He wanted you to look at the page and go, wow, so clean and so neat. Mm-hmm. He just drew it like magic. Yeah. But you didn't see all the tracing and all that and stuff. Like he would, they would use light tables or windows to draw on to change stuff slightly onto tracing paper and then re- redraw. Like there was a lot of drawing that went into every page mm-hmm. that you don't see because so much of it was just waste. Not waste in the sense that it was a waste of time, but just waste in the sense that it wasn't used. It was just, right. you know, all these practices and all these different, all these variations, and then he just chose the best of the best. And even if he got to page 45 and he thought of a better idea on, for page 15, he would go back and redraw. Sure. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, because <laughs> it's time-consuming, but yeah. he didn't care. If you're putting a, putting a page in a drawer for a week because you want someone to rush, That's right, yeah. then you're not going to care about the... Um, you want, yeah, you want the final product to look good. Yeah. 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 Of course. So, once again... You can be tint- you can be RJ if you want. Right. The pages were inked using a uh, uh, gelat. We should have a game, by the way. The amount of times that you uh, say oh, her- my God. Tintin the- instead of Hergé. That's a drinking game. <laughs> Take a drink, everyone. Every yeah. time I do it, you'll be laying in a pool of your own vomit by the end of the show. <laughs> uh, okay, use the gelat. In- just drink mineral water, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Just, just I mineral just drink, water. Just pop. It's fine, too. Okay. Gelat Inquiduct G2 pen is what he used to draw. So he bought a bunch of these when he was visiting England before, the, before World War II. And he just kept, he still had some when he when he he finally finished drawing he still still had them he would sharpen them with a little file. Does this pen still exist? I don't maybe maybe it's in the museum. I don't okay. know. I've never been to the museum. I just wonder if they still make these pens. No. Okay. Uh, well, they might, but I've not seen Jalad. I don't know if they make a lot of them uh, anymore. All right. Um, I don't even know. I, I'm not too sure. I tried to look up and see if I could find one to, to kind of know what it was. But I don't, I don't and, know. And I don't think I've asked you this. Sorry to interrupt the process here. Uh, is this studio, does the building still exist? Does it still stand? I believe so. Okay. I believe they're still is based it a, out of it. Is it uh, some that people give tours or they go, or is it just uh, now just other people uh, live know. and work there? I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah. Okay. But I know that, I mean, the Moulinsart, the company yeah. that, that kind of manages, overlooks, oversees the the Tintin Empire is still based in that building. I'm oh, all sure. right. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Why wouldn't they be? Uh, okay, so... Because they did well, and they could move to a better building? They're, I think they're doing pretty well at the time. Okay. Uh, and I mean, it's right in Brussels. It's right in, like, downtown Brussels. Sure, so I don't know what downtown Brussels is like, so... Me neither. I've never been there. One day. One day, I swear. Uh, so even at this stage, though, even though this is the inking stage, drawings could still be altered. Mm-hmm. You could still cut a panel out and put another panel in, or whatever, or just white out a whole bunch of it. If you look at the art, it's always got tons of... Sure. He used gouache, uh, white gouache, to, to erase the ink. It's tons of it. Mostly taking stuff out. So it was like, too many wrinkles. Erase those wrinkles. Mm-hmm. You don't have... You don't want to overdo the wrinkles, you know. Um, then the pages were photographed by a photo engraver for coloring. So the original pages were not colored on. Those were just left. And I think this stems from when they first started doing the colorizing... The fact that they were having to cut up the old Petit Vantien pages and reconfigure them and, you know, redraw frames and right. and move stuff around. And so those pages were just a wreck. There's no way you could have colored on those pages. So they would get sent, get photo, you know, be shot on to new, onto a new piece of paper and then colored there. This would have been easier to do that. I think the habit carried on. Right. I'm assuming that. And what would they color them with? Uh, they used a variety of paints. One was watercolor. So any kind of uh, delicate colors would be watercolor. They also use a kind of watercolor called Ecoline, which is like, it comes in those little bottles. Do you know what I mean? Like Dr. Martin, like the dyes. Okay. Uh, they use those as well for like bright colors. And then they also used uh, gouache for the opaque colors. And everything, a lot of the stuff had like a, a real set, a real set, um, some things had a set, like a set color scheme. Like say, 
uh, Tintin's blue sweater. Or his hair. Or, or his hair. Like his blue sweater was a combination of two different paints to make that one color because it just gave it a real vibrant color, I guess. And that's what he wanted. The final, oh, sorry, the almost final step, lettering. So this is probably done throughout it though, but this was when it was finalized. So if you look at most, a lot of Hergé pages, the lettering isn't on the page because they're going to be translated. So the later books, they just left the lettering off the main, off the original page. So then the, uh, I guess when it was colored, it was reshot maybe, or he did the person did it into transparency. I'm not too sure. And those, then the lettering was done. But how it was done is they, Hergé would, it was typed out on a typewriter. And then to approximate how it would look on the page. And then you, you know, he would just kind of figure out the balloon sizes from that. Oh, okay. And then, and then the balloons were drawn in before there was ever lettering in it. Oh, that's, that's it, interesting. Yeah, it All is. All right. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and then it was inked onto the page. And then the final step was to add the sound effects. Those are the last things that were put in. And that's why sometimes they're forgotten. Like if you look, uh, in this, in this, um, looking at the magazine version, there's a scene where I think someone's knocking on the door and there's no sound effect. There's just, there's the sound lines, but there's no sound effect. So they were forgotten, <laughs> I guess, while they're doing it. Hmm. So, like I said, Frere all the elements are all, all the elements that we talked about are all subordinate to the story. So the art should be, is there just to facil- facilitate the narrative and, you know, obviously clarity, the whole Claire Line, Claire Line thing that came out later on. But I mean, obviously he already had that idea in his head. He did not like shading and he did not like dull colors on the page. And the reason he didn't, the reason he didn't like shading is because he couldn't shade when he first started because the newsprint couldn't take the shading. It would just turn into blotches on the, on the paper. So he just got away from that. And once he did that, it became sort of an aesthetic. So once, what was once uh, practical became an ideal, you know, so, and then, uh, he wanted a person to be able to open any page in a Tintin story and to be able to understand what they're reading. He wanted that story to be that clear. So everything was concise and, and obvious. And he would just take panels out if he felt like they were wasting, wasting space and weren't uh, progressing the story. The only thing that was independent of that was gags. Gags could be taken out or put in anywhere. Uh, he didn't care about that. And for him, I think we mentioned this last time, for Hergé, the ideal reader was an attentive child who would laugh out loud when he read the story. That's to him was the perfect reader. And it's funny, one of our listeners, Dylan, was... Uh, wrote to say that uh, he was reading, he finds, say, the, the Thompson twins or the Thompsons kind of, kind of uh, tiresome. But his, he's been reading to his son, he was reading the, I uh, was reading Land of Black Gold to his son, who laughed out loud when they drove their Jeep into the tree. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just that age, you know, where, you know, those sort of things work, you know, and those what grab you. Things later on will grab him and his son in a different way, you know, and those, those memories will always warm his heart to Tintin, even when they become, even when the Thompsons become tiresome later on. There's still something about them that we remember fondly because we remember them from when we were younger and they made us laugh. So yeah, to Erge, that was the uh, most important thing. So let's talk about let's talk about the story itself. Now that we know all the all the background that Erge didn't have to draw anymore. All right. So this story was published started on the in the Christmas edition of Tintin magazine on December twenty second, nineteen fifty four, and went to February twenty second, nineteen fifty six. This was the first one since Red Rackham's Treasure that ran without interruption. So there was no... Ergy did not disappear at any time during the making of this Oh, okay. This uh, story. Uh, so Explorers on the Moon ended just 29th of December, 1953. So it's basically a year later, the story starts again. And uh, one interesting thing about the publication history of it to me is that near the end of the run, I'll mention it when we're reading it, 
uh, it returns to the weird, what's called the Italian style, where instead of being one page, like the color albums, it spread across two pages of the magazine of three tiers. For most of the, most of the story, it's, it's the one, you know, the, this one page style that could just be easily transferred into the, to the album. Right. And suddenly, for some reason, I have no idea why. It actually has some, it's interesting in a way. I'll talk about when we get there, but it's interesting. By the way, anyone again out there who knows why, let's Please know. Please let me know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and so obviously this story was very much uh, a product of like the Cold War. I mean, you can see Erge kind of working that through. But it's interesting is he's sort of anticipating it at the same time. Like, I don't think when he started this that there was a big bunch of fiction about sort of Cold War themes and stuff like that. It kind of, that kind of comes later. Late 50s, early 60s, full of stories like Failsafe and uh, Spyro came in from the cold and Ice Station Zebra and all these kind of stories like that, that were all kind of these Cold War stories, even James Bond, 57, right. you know. Uh, so those are all kind of later elements of, of this. Uh, so he's kind of right, he's kind of ahead of the, the curve a little bit on it. Um, so, I, But I think because it was partly inspired by what he'd already established in Destination Moon and Explorers on the Moon, where he'd set up this sort of Borduria-Sildavia ri- rivalry, it was easy for him to, to kind of trans, to transition uh, Borduria into sort of a totalitarian, totalitarian state of no fixed ideology. Yeah. You know, it's not communist. It's not fascist. It's tashist. Yeah. You know, so it's not anything. It's sort of a made it's up. It's what you need it to be. But it's still, story, yeah. yeah, but it still reflects that kind of totalitarian communist uh, feeling. You know, it's, you know, the spying on visitors. But the nice and, thing about that, too, is then it makes it uh, timeless. Yeah. Yeah. So later you don't go, wait a second, Russia isn't like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, wait a second. But, but this country always will be. What's interesting, though, is Sildavia's role in it. Because Sildavia and Explorers on the Moon and Destination Moon is where Calculus has gone to work on the rocket pro- project. One book later, they're trying to kidnap him to steal his his uh, invention. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, rockets make strange bedfellows. We know that. Yeah. You know. All I of guess. a sudden, maybe those Nazis aren't so bad. Let's uh, <laughs> let's find out what Werner von Braun thinks about uh, getting these rockets into space. Does that mean you agree with Werner von? No, it's just you know we got to get to space. Yeah. So things compromises are made. Yeah. So, but even within like the Bordurian state, like, you know, you have like these kind of KGB like secret police, but their uniforms are very reminiscent of the SS. Mm -hmm. So it's like he's going from either and two spectrums of of the right right and left. So it's a good shorthand for okay, for what you want to get across. You know, when you see those uniforms, you have a certain emotional feeling and like that's what you want for this. And what's interesting is it's obvious to us, but actually it's ahead of its time in a way. It predates the 20th. Uh, what was it called? The 20th Congress of the Soviet Union, where Khrushchev denounced Stalin and mm-hmm. the whole desalinization program started. So this is ahead of that. So he's already comparing Stalin to Hitler, or comparing you know this Stalinist communism to 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 Nazism to fascism, before uh, anyone knew about you know before Poland, before right. Czechoslovakia. You know, it's interesting. Uh, and then of course the mustache is very reminiscent of, of yes. Stalin. But then the salute, the Amiya, Amai, I don't know how you pronounce it, that they say to each other, they'll say Amai, you know, like sort of, sort of like right. Heil, you know, Zeke Heil. It's kind of a salute, which the you don't, salute looks yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also, he was also inspired by a book he'd actually got while he was researching, uh, Destination Moon Explorers on the Moon. He got this book, uh, by Major General Leslie E. Simon. He was a retired American general. He wrote a book called German Research in World War II. And Erge had got it because he wanted information on the uh, 
V2 rocket program because he wanted to read more about how the rockets worked. And that's where he <clears throat> got the designs for the rocket for Destination Moon from this book. And so in this book, there was an account of a research program into ultrasonic weapons. Uh, and there's a picture from the book that's reproduced in, in the story. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we find it. But it, you know, so this was done under the uh, Speer ministry, uh, during World War II, this program. And, uh, what's interesting is it fed into this article that he'd read. Uh, it was in this, um, Belgian magazine called, uh, Face, La Face à Main, which means lornette. You know, lornettes, like the little, no, I don't know what the little glasses is. on a stem that you oh, people hold up to their, yeah. yes, the kind of fancy, fancy glasses. Fancy glasses, yes. That you, you don't really need glasses except to read and see people and drive and walk down the stairs without falling. The matriarch uses those glasses. Exactly. So. Uh, and so he read the story in there concerning this, this mysterious, a series of mysterious incidences in England, on this road in England, uh, cars, windshields were spontaneously shattering while they were driving, and no one knew why. And so the author of this article postulates uh, that there was a secret project going on at some sort of, some sort of nearby laboratory that was causing this problem. Oh, okay. And so, and so uh, yeah, when I read that, he kind of fed these, these things into the, into the, so you can see what what he, he what they mean when they say his stories were written sort of instinctively, not you know it's just things that he picked up over time and it started kind of puzzle pieces fell together, and you can really see how you know being that way, being intuitive, he's able to anticipate changes you know whether it's Cold War fiction or even Stalin's fall from grace in the Soviet Union, just he's picking stuff up and he's sort of putting it all together in his mind and it's it's forming a picture. You know, that maybe other people aren't seeing because they're not getting the same information or they don't have that similar way of seeing things, you know. But it is interesting. Uh, now, one reason this book took a while to do is because it's the first book that he actually traveled to do research on. So it wasn't that he traveled that far. He loved to go to Switzerland, obviously. We've talked about him going there many yeah. times. But first he wrote to, uh, there was the Leco Illustre, which was a magazine that ran Tintin in, in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So he wrote to the, um, the editor and asked him to send him like railway timetables and things like that. And then his friend, Charlie Fornara, the people he'd like to stay with when he ran off, uh, he asked him to send him a bottle of, of wine, of Swiss wine. So for purely for research purposes, oh, of course, why? why would you not? And, uh, yeah, I think it's a valet wine thing was called anyway. So, but yeah, this time he went there and, uh, they were able to do sketches of like the hotels and the railway stations and the airport and the roads and all kinds of things like that. We'll Do you think one of the reasons that he didn't go a wandering on this book was because he did go wa wandering? No, no, that he didn't go a wandering oh. as he did in past books uh, was maybe because he went a wandering in this. He went, went to Switzerland anyway. So yeah. why would you take off and go to Switzerland or wherever you're going to go? You're already there. No, oh, no, he did go to Switzerland. No, I understand oh, what okay. I'm saying. Yeah. But not in a way of like, I'm just leaving the book where Hergé go. Oh, oh okay. he's in Switzerland. Yeah. Oh, okay. But no, this was, uh, he made it part of, you know, his yeah. Uh, yeah. artistic journey to do this. So sure, he didn't sure. have to do the taking off randomly. That's true. That's true. But, you know, before it happened in the middle of the story, not just at the beginning. But yeah. yeah, maybe he got it out of his system that way. Uh, yeah, so... Because, you know, now he has all these people that can take his vision and make it reality, you know. So it's not just him struggling to draw a tank over and over right. again. He's got someone he can say, you're really good at drawing tanks. You do the tank in this sequence. I will draw Tintin's head peeping out of the door. Right. You know, that's or out of the porthole. You know, that's all I need to do. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. So let's, um, oh, one last thing. Sure. Because I love when they do this. People give this information away. I love it. <laughs> Which is alternate titles for the stories. Oh, good, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So... I think the, Cal the Calculus Affair is the great, a great title. 
if you're gonna do a, a book about spies and yeah. stuff like that, the would be a perfect perfect. one for a novel. You pick that up, or La Fer Tournesol. The other names were, and none of these are as good as the Calculus Affair or okay. La Fer Tournesol, but I, I, I like the alternate. I like to know the alternates. So the first one is Le Ca, Le Ca, the Tournesol case. Okay. Or the Calculus case, the case of Calculus. I don't know. Yeah. The other one was Trifon, just his first name. So I guess we, Cuthbert in the English version. All right. We yeah, not really not that like, familiar. No, people don't really know that. Yeah. So yeah. That's not great. The other one is La Galère de Tournesol, which is the Tournesol, Tournesol's galley or the galley of Tournesol. I don't even know what that means. Hmm. The galley. What galley? I mean, there's no galley in it, whether it's a ship's kitchen or a... There's never a galley. All right. This one I like. Not, it's not that great, but I like it. Bling Blang for Tintin. <laughs> why Why Bling Blang for Tintin? Because Bling Blang is the noise that the glass makes when it breaks in the story. Wow. Okay. That wasn't ever considered. Apparently. Nope, never. I disagree. All and right, then go ahead. The last one is Il y a un espion à Moulinsart. There is a spy in Marlin's in Marlin Spike. Okay. Not bad. It's but not, not bad. great. It's not it's too long. It's a calculus affair. It's too long. What do you think of the cover, by the way? I love the cover. I, and I was looking at the back of, once again, whenever I look at a cover, I always look and compare at covers that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I like in many of the co- covers, I love the, um, I love us being out, kind of outside or away from the, the image or the happenings. So right. This one and the next one, we're looking through something at the characters. Yeah. Or uh, Prisoner of the Sun or Flight 714, where we're kind of down a tunnel looking back at them. Mm-hmm. I kind of I like that. I like that effect. One of my favorite covers, it's not even a Tintin cover. It's the Valley of the Cobras, the Joe's, the Joe, Zet, and Jocko story we were talking about earlier, has a great cover of us. We're inside the cave looking out at them. Standing in the the cave of the the mouth of the cave, not mm-hmm. the cave of the mouth, but the mouth of the cave, and then behind them is like all the mountains and, and everything, and it's just a great great cover. And I, I just like that idea that we are kind of somewhere looking at the characters. It puts right. us in the place in the in the in the drawing, kind of like King Otacar Scepter is the same in the sense that we're standing on the drawbridge looking at Tintin walking out down in towards the in towards. Yeah, that one it almost looks like we're waiting for Tintin. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that sense of that we're not just a, a viewer of a, an image, but we're a, a participant in the image as well. Which is one of the reasons I think you dislike The Secret of the Unicorn, because it's just kind of a mishmash, and it doesn't yeah. it's have like, that Well, it's feel. ugly. I don't like it because it's ugly. To yeah. Me. To me, it's But ugly. this one, I mean, the Capitalist Affair, I like the, uh, I really like the broken glass around everything. Well, what's interesting is... Which, once you read it, you go, oh, I get it. Yeah. But it's a nice dynamic It's a nice... Look, yeah. Uh, just it's like we're peeping... Once again, it's like we're peeping through something at the action. Right. And but I the glass is broken because it's, yeah. it's a device. That breaks glass. Okay, there's a few things I love about it. One is I love the pen lines because they're kind of thick. Mm-hmm. And I love that thicker pen line. I actually wondered, I looked at, to see the panel this was based on because I thought initially, oh, maybe they just blew up a panel for this, but they didn't. No. Yeah. And I love the way the guys are running down the hill. That's a really good drawing of people running down a hill. Yeah, side. it feels like they're really running down a hill. Yeah. yeah they've yeah. got to, like, you know, and then, careful, easy. With the broken glass around it, it's, yeah, it's like we're peeking in on this on this moment. Like we're just, we're just seeing in. What's curious is that. I don't know how true this is, but I read that Hergé had wanted to have plastic shards glued on the cover mm. of the of the books. So when you looked at it, you were looking through this clear plastic, nice broken effect. Casterman would not go for it, though. Would not go for it. But it would have been an interesting look because it, it made me wonder if if it wouldn't have been interesting to have the the actual background still visible through the glass, but more less distinctly. So that you have a feeling that we were looking through a window right. into the into the, the scene, but it might have they might have tried it and it was too busy. Right. But yeah, it's very good. And then it's interesting to go from that, that very action packed scene with and you know, this also gives you a sense of, of risk as well, an element of risk because 
what's wrong with calculus? Yeah. Is he hurt? Is he dead? Is he what's what's going on here? And once again, it's a it's a bold choice that you would not see in a modern comic, a modern North American comic, yeah. which is we're not seeing the main characters' faces. Yeah, that's true. I was thinking about that. The not th- even snowy this time. A mm-hmm. lot of times we're, we're look out at us. it will yeah. look out at us. All of them looking away. Yeah. Like yeah. you assuming we you know what these characters look like. Yeah. Why would we have to show you on the cover of our story? You'd never have a James Bond story with James Bond on the cover with his back to you. Yeah. It just wouldn't happen. Well, that's interesting. I was thinking about that because we were talking about this maybe last time or a show before. And because you were, yeah, I think last show, and you were kind of saying it in a negative way. Not necessarily in a negative, negative way. Negative, but it is different. You're it's right. very different. It's something that you would not see in a modern comic by, in, in any yeah, way. Because well, modern comic, you're always a viewer. You're not a participant. Whereas this is making us a participant. We're actually standing in the scene looking behind them at, at the action. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that it's a different way, a different aesthetic of how to show how to show the action. I would say try to find almost any book, mm-hmm. a detective book, any genre book, yeah. and, and try to find me one where it's, you're seeing the back of the character's head, your, your main character, your protagonist's head. Find me a James Bond. Find me, find me any, any you know, mainstream, not even mainstream, it doesn't even have to be mainstream, but any, any cover where you see the back of your character's head. It's a very bold choice. The Black Island, the Tintin story of the Black Thank Island. Thank you very much. You found it, and I owe you a Coke. So now we... You'll find your Coke over there. <laughs> Thank you. Now we go from this very dynamic and kind of chaotic scene with broken glass and stuff like that to, to the, oh, the first image, is, which is Calculus is walking down the road from Marlin Spike. Uh, and I really like that contrast from the action to once again, now calculus is fine. He's just walking down the road. But what is he walking to? That's the question. Cause we know from the cover that something bad's going to happen. And then we turn to him walking. And I like, I just like that, that contrast. Yep. He's it got his, uh, gets you ready to, gets you ready to rock. He's got his umbrella. Will the umbrella become important? And beautiful <laughs> trees. Let's say that. Yes. Now, uh, good old, all right. good so, old Bob Demore. Mm, so we're starting with page one. And can I just say something before we start? You, I know your, I've been talking half, for, it's half for an podcast, hour. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the magazine version, I'm going to talk about it a little bit. The magazine version opens with our the famous shot, fam- a full panel shot of uh, of Marlon Spike. And Guess what? what angle? Straight on. Wow. Because that's all the reference they had. Wouldn't it be no interesting? No one can bother it, to it, actually go there. Wouldn't it be interesting if it looks terrible from the sides and the back? It like pr- we just see the back does. and it just is a shack. There's laundry hanging up there. There's a car on blocks. It's just garbage <laughs> everywhere. Right. It's just a nightmare. Just like, and the one deal is like always shoot it from the front. Yeah. It's beautiful from the front. Yeah, that's right. Well, part of it was the actual uh, Chateau de Sevigny is much longer. Like he cut off both wings on either side of it. Oh, okay. So I wonder if he just was unsure of what to draw on the side of it after he cut away the the the, the two wings of it. I wonder if people visit it just who are fans of Tintin just to just to see it for real. Yeah. I wonder Why if not? we will. We will. <laughs> one of these days. All right. So as you say, we're going from an action-packed cover mm-hmm. to page one, and we're having a phone ringing. You mentioned once how much Hergé does not like to draw a phone. Yes. So this would have been Bob Dumont, probably, right or someone there, else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the phone rings six times. That butler needs to get to the the, the phone quicker than that, Nestor. Uh, you can't have a six a six ring. Well, back. I think we find out why it's taken so long. Uh, why is that? He's just fed up. Yes. Yeah. So he answers the phone. We get some nice business off the top, uh, saying that this is not Mister Cuts the Butcher. Yes. Uh, this is not Marlin Spike four three one. This is four two one. And this apparently has happened quite a bit. Yeah. This is the first appearance of Cuts who. 
now it becomes sort of a regular oh is that right ghostly visitor in the stories oh, yeah i was uh, i was happy later on when we actually saw cuts the butcher <laughs> yeah. i was like when you do a setup like this he thinks just a gag yeah and then it's paid off a little bit later on in, in the french version his name was uh sanzo not cuts but sanzo without bones without be. bones yeah so there's a word there's one word that's no is, but it's sans Oh, sans without O S, like so S A N S O S. But in, it was spelled as it's spelled S A N Z O T. But yeah, and interesting. Here's one more interesting thing. Ersley's phone number, his actual home phone number, was four twelve. So I'm wondering if he had this actual problem at his house and he he transferred into the story. Well, if you've got a phone number that's three digits long, something's going to happen once yeah, in a while. Yeah, I guess so. All right. So uh, Nestor mentions to the person, uh, the next person who calls, who does not want Mr. Cuts the Butcher, but wants uh, Captain Haddock, that he has gone for a walk. So we cut to uh, Haddock and Tintin going for a nice stroll. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and I like how in his civilian life, he dresses very differently than yeah. he does when he goes on his adventures. He's almost, he's a country gentleman. Well, he's almost got that Indiana Jones thing of when he's a teacher, he's mm-hmm. dressed as a yes. teacher. And now it's time to be Indiana Jones. You put on the hat. Yeah. And in his sake, he puts uh, his uh, case, he puts on, you know, his, uh, blue anchor blue shirt. anchor shirt and off he goes. And his but, captain's hat. But he's had enough now. He's had enough of these advent, uh, the adventures. He's come back from the moon. He's tuckered out. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't, uh, he's, he's a sailor and he just went to the moon. He's done. So he's telling Tintin. Well, it's, it's, it, this is an interesting story in a way. And it's going to tell, it's going to kind of affect the rest of the, the Tintin stories. This is the first story where they don't seek the adventure, but it happens to them. Okay. You know, there's no, Tintin doesn't read or find a, doesn't find like a, a crab label from a, you know, can of, like, a, or a, you know, a crab, tin crab label and then start to seek what this means, you know, or discover, uh, read about uh, mysterious, you know, illnesses of some people who uh, uncovered a Incan mummy, right? And then go investigate what that means. He doesn't. There's no investigation here. It just comes to exactly where they live, and it kind of goes from there. You know, it's an interesting change. And then there's a giant barum. <laughs> barum. Yeah. Good sound effects. It is a good sound effect. So, uh, you know, so much for your peace and quiet, uh, Captain. Look over there, storm brewing. Yes. The nice clouds coming in, beautiful mm-hmm. clouds, well drawn. And so it's time to get back to the house. Uh, wind blows off his hat, his fancy man's hat. <laughs> and uh, Snowy returns it. Good for Snowy. And we see Snowy as a real dog here. Yeah, he's very doggish. There's right. only one uh, moment, I think, in the uh, one scene where he, he speaks. Yeah. I don't remember that now. I was going to say, this is the first story where he doesn't speak at no, all. I don't does. think there's any story where he never speaks. Yeah, though. he pops his head up out of some water and gives a little sarcastic oh, okay. uh, remark. That's right. So uh, Nestor is coming at him uh, with an umbrella. Good for Nestor. Very good. Good I'm, thinking, Nestor. I'm enjoying Nestor. I like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the wind blows it backwards. No <laughs> dice. Yeah, that's good. And uh, and uh, we see that, uh, that Haddock and Tintin are being watched. By two different people. Right. And one of them is saying, by the whiskers of... Uh, curvy tash. Someone else is watching them already. So, mm-hmm. what does that tell us? Whiskers of curvy tash. I don't know. Do we know that aspect of Borduria? I don't know. Or would know. this be sort of a mysterious thing yet? I don't remember. But it's a good dramatic thing mis- right off the top that yeah. lets you know this guy's from out of town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, up they go. Getting all uh, dried off. Telephone rings. And unfortunately, it's another call for Mr. Cuts. <laughs> Now, uh, fiddle dee dee, madam. Fiddle dee dee. Can I just say it's a strange insult? In, and I, I don't even know it's an insult. It's a strange thing in the French version. He says, This is to her flute, madam. Hmm. Flute. Yes. Fair enough. Not fiddle dee dee. 
So uh, flash of li- different uh, instruments. Indeed, a flash of lightning happens uh, outside that is not that far away, and we look and we see there's uh, the windows are broken, shattered, perhaps from the uh, lightning, perhaps from the thunder. But uh, Tintin says, "Funny thing is that happened after the clap of thunder." Good point. Phone <laughs> rings again, drawn, not probably by Hergé. <laughs> and now this is a dangerous thing. I remember this from when I was a kid. I, I never heard this as a kid. Oh, I did. Well, I've got. I was told two things. One, never watch television in a thunderstorm because okay. it could hit the antenna back uh-huh. when we had antennas. Yeah, it would come down. It would blow up your TV, uh-huh. set your house on fire. Our, our antenna sat on top of the set, so it seemed unlikely that it would come Very through the good. window uh, because we had an acorn on the windowsill. <laughs> and then uh, also, don't answer the phone because it's a ta- You know, if it, if it hits the uh, phone lines, the lightning yeah. that'll come through. It'll electrocute you. It makes and sense. You'll die. I guess it makes sense. Yeah. And but of course there was. I've never one, heard of it though. And of course there was like one person that they knew of that uh, apparently died from it. The, always, the always cousin, some... the cousin of an uncle's friend's aunt's butler. Right, who was also yeah. the reason you couldn't do other fun things. Like, yeah, that's right. you couldn't have a bubble bath because they got an ear infection and died from it. So you can't do that. One thing that's curious, I just want a little shout out to Neil Hislop, the uh, the letterer for the English versions. Is mm-hmm. his lettering, his sound effects are better. Than the original version. Okay. Uh, now I'm looking. Version. I'm looking. Okay. So uh, the version I've got here. So if I, I not that good. Here's the here's the ones for this one. Better. Yes, I would agree. Not so good in the new one. Yep. These versions are uh, suffer in a couple of ways. One is I don't like the lettering as much. They so I, I like the old Neil. When Hislop you say when you say this stuff. version, you should say what version. Oh, sorry, the Egmont about. version that you have. Right. They updated. I mean, I I know why they did it because it's actually more like Hergé's, uh, the actual print, the actual. Lettering in the in the Hergé books in the actual French books, right. whereas these were done by someone using a uh, looks like it with a calligrapher's fountain pen. Well, no, I'm going to I'm going to half disagree with you. Yeah. we're on the bottom of page three. I'd say the crack on mine is better uh, because it's got actual crackles in it. So I think the crack works, but my bang is weak, and your bang is much stronger than mine. Okay, I don't know. I like them both very good. Better, but um, story wise, yeah, uh, Haddock is gone. He has been uh, disintegrated, it looks like. All that's left are his shoes, which are smoldering. And, uh, Can I just say one other thing that stinks please. about the Egmont version? Is it's on glossy paper. Yuck. Okay. Don't like it. You do not like a gloss. I don't like glossy paper, no. All right. I like uh, proper paper. Okay. Well, I don't think... Proper paper like a gentleman. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. But let's get back to the story. Get back to the story. Uh, Haddock's dead. He's gone. He's disintegrated. I guess we're never going to see him for the rest of the... Wait, nope. All this left are his shoes. He was blown up into the chandelier and a very <laughs> funny image of him hanging up there. Yes. Uh, saying, of course, uh, billions of blistering barnacles. And not the last time he'll be saying that through this story. Probably not. So he makes his way down. Not sure how he gets down. Uh, there's another crack of, uh, of, of lightning happening exactly the same time as the lightning. So you know it is very close. Yeah. And uh, his priceless Chinese vase is gone. Yes. Now, not gone, but it's been destroyed. Been destroyed, yes. That's right. I uh, can't really understand how that happened. I can't make this out. Then a, then a beautiful Florentine mirror is gone. It's just shattered. All in pieces. Okay, this makes me, I was wondering, reading, rereading this, does Calculus know that he's destroying precious antiques? Priceless antiques? Antiques think, beyond think, value? I don't think he cares. Listen, uh, two, okay, before we went to the moon, yeah. uh, Calculus was doing some experiments in the house that blew basically the side of the house out, right? I don't think he intentionally did that. In this case, he's aiming, 
he's aiming his weapon. I assume he's aiming his weapon at well, these objects. Making, nothing else is breaking. No, I don't think he's aiming it at the weapons. What I assume is... Well, how come one is breaking and one isn't? There's two vases. Right. Understood. One is breaking and one isn't. Because it's a concentrated beam. It's going through the walls. Yeah. And it's hitting a thing, but it's pro he's probably aiming at something in his lab itself. Oh, okay. But it's going straight oh, through. Oh, so and, these are just these yeah. are un unwitting... It's basically if you shot a bullet in a house and it yeah. just went through the wall, it would hit certain things. Yeah. I'll try it when I get home. Sure. Uh, we think, though, possibly that uh, this uh, mirror might be because of Snowy chasing the cat. The table seemed to have turned on this relationship, by the way. The cat always seems to chase Snowy. Yeah. Uh, but it seems Snowy... Well, no, Snowy usually he starts it. He starts it. And, and then, then the cat finishes yeah. it. The cat turns the tables. Right. So uh, so uh, he's getting the blame now from Haddock on this, but that does not make any sense. Uh, he, he could not have broken uh, that vase. Mm -hmm. uh, and then another crack. Now the, the lights are out. And there is a knock on the door. Uh, Nestor, always handy with a candle, right there, asking should he open it. Uh, he's told yes. Uh, the door swings open, and uh, the visitor comes in, smashing his head into Haddock's. A great introduction to what, what will be one of the worst people you'll ever meet. <laughs> yes, this is a terrible, terrible person. So, why don't you introduce who this character is? So, we have our first introduction to what once again become a continuing character. Oh, okay. Mr. Jolion Wegg of the Rock Bottom Insurance Corporation, which is a great name. Assurance... Uh, Mondas, I believe it's called in the French version. Not that great. His name in the French version is Seraphin Lampion. A Lampion is kind of like a chintzy little lamp or a Chinese lantern kind of oh, an okay. idea. Sort of something that, something that a person like that would buy. I think that that's what, uh, originally, Hergé was going to call him Crampon, which, uh, comes from the expression like, uh, quel crampon, what a leech. So he's going to call him that, but then he thought it was too obvious. So he went with something a little more oh, so we, different. We, so we weren't going Lamprey as Lamprey Eel. Lampion or Lampion? No, no, Lampion. Okay. no, no. Uh, yeah, so we meet Jolian Wegg. Let's just call him. I think it's a great English name as well. I think mm -hmm. the, I think um, this book has a lot of a lot of uh, inspired translations. One cuts the butcher, and then also Jolian Wegg of the Rock Bottom Insurance. Uh, and so we have, of course, Haddock angry, billions of blue blistering barnacles, and once you know who, what are you doing here anyway? That's a long story, old boy. Says uh, this fellow, who was a type of person that Hergé particularly despised. He did not like a boar. That was his least favorite person yeah. in the world, was the boar. Uh, and this was a based on a true experience. A person came to his house and actually asked Hergé to take a pew in his own house, which he found so boring. To take a pew? Yes. You know, when people say that when you take a seat? Yeah. Take a pew, you know, which it was his own seat, you know, his own, his own yeah. house. Why are you telling yeah. me to... It's like telling someone, make yourself at home. Yes. When it's yeah, not it's your... their own home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He just found that so boorish and this, he just, yeah. So this character kind of came out of this experience. And basically he just became this way for, uh, Hergé to torment himself. Because I think he really, I mean, if we accept that, uh, if we accept that, you know, he was tinted up to a certain point and then he became Haddock. And now Hergé is Haddock, you know, uh, as he's older now and less, more of a crank and less, less boyish. You know, so really, Waggis is put there to torment himself. Well, I also like the idea, if you're going with that analogy, that he's Haddock and he uh, wants to quit, you know? And so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, he, every so often, Hergé will quit. He's yes. like, I'm out of it. And then he gets dragged into it. Mm -hmm. Can't help himself. He's, got, he's pulled in. Yes, he feels ob obligated. So, so the boar is doing boorish things. Yes. Uh, he's wandering around. He sees the broken mirror. So, oh, a tiff with a wife, huh? I like it. <laughs> but I like it that he says, uh, nice place you have here. I prefer something a little more modern, but still. Uh, yeah. Who asked you? Yes, you horrible boor. And then the uh, great moment where Hergé is, uh, or sorry, Hergé, where Haddock. Take a drink. 
Everybody, David said Henry yeah. instead of a character's if, name. If, yep. You guys, you guys are going to be laying on the floor soon. Get some mineral water in you. Yes, that's true. Pretend you're in Sildavia. Yep. Uh, he, uh, so, you know, of course, uh, Jolion Wag invites himself for a drink. So uh, Haddock's kind enough to pour some for him. And then as he goes, as he says cheers and goes, prepares to drink it, his glass cr- smashes, shatters to pieces in his hands. He cannot believe it. However, Jolion thinks it's, Mr. Wag thinks it's, that's fun. He says, oh, that's fun. Yeah, he has a good time at other people's expense. I'm really glad that uh, Haddock has given up on wearing that monocle. Yes. Otherwise, he'd have a terrible eye injury in this story. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And then, of course, he begins to tell another story of his Uncle Anatole. Oh, Uncle Anatole, we'll soon be tired of you. Uh, Wag does. And then, uh, so he goes, he starts telling the the story, which, of course, is, we know. Very boring. It's going to be boring. It'll have no end, no end in sight. When suddenly his glass shatters and... Suddenly, he doesn't think it's so funny. He's actually quite scared. Whereas Haddock says, I think it's fun. <laughs> With the most terrible scowl on his face. And then Wag says he has to go. And so he prepares to leave. He, of course, before he leaves, he sells uh, Haddock some insurance. Says he'll come back again with insurance already for him. Doesn't take no for an answer? Well, not take so, no there for There are answer. people that are really like this. And I always wonder, oh, yeah. how did you survive? <laughs> how did you get through the life? It's amazing. But they do. I mean, how? But when, are they the most successful people? Yeah, the ones who have no, yeah, have no empathy or any. And how do you end a, up not buried in the backyard? They have such a thick Shovel skin. Shovel to the head, bonk, done, <laughs> bury, forget, <laughs> so on. Anyway, well, the people that they prey on are, are the people that don't do that. That's a very good point. They're the person that would bonk you on the head. So he's gone. Uh, yes. We hear three bangs. Uh, they came from outside. Uh, calculus is coming, uh, coming home. He doesn't seem to have his umbrella or anything. Uh, I don't know what the weather's like now. Probably it's, it's better. Uh, ask, did well, you... Well, he's just coming back from the laboratory, so he's probably not coming that far. Now, here's a little thing I, I don't quite understand in this yeah. story. Uh, calculus is hearing problem. Yes. Now, the last time it was gone because he was wearing a hearing aid. Yes. I made that very clear. Yeah. He does not have a hearing aid in this story. Yeah. Yet he seems to be able to hear clearly until the latter half of this story where his hearing issue comes back again. Oh, no. He still has problem hearing. It's just that he's it's not exploited in the way it is in, in Prisoner of the Sun. But there's yeah. a sequence when they, when they, do, well, they do rescue him. Right, like right now he's got a hearing problem because it's, did yeah. you hear those shots? Yeah. No, it's over now, the rain has stopped. But yes. there'll be moments later where they're having fine conversations, no problem at all. Okay, we'll have to get to that. All right. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Very good. Uh, so uh, Tintin shows him his hat and we notice that there's a there's a hole, he a says bullet that, yeah, has gone right through. But he says, thinks it's moths, mm-hmm. Calcu- old calculus. Because who would think that anyone would shoot it? A harmless old fellow like that. So Tintin and uh, Haddock decide they should go outside and investigate. And some nice color work here with their flashlights, I yeah. gotta say. Uh, then they find one of my, they find a man who's been shot. He's alive, but barely. His heart is beating faintly. So, uh, Haddock runs off to telephone the police, which of course he promptly, uh, finds himself, uh, talking to, uh, Mr. Cuts the Butcher rather than the police. Yep. I was sure the number is 412. Oh, sorry, that's Erge's number. Calls up. And the phone rings. Someone calls, calling for Mr. Cuts. Now, my question is, how late is Mr. Cuts open, the butcher? It's, mm. it's quite late at night. You'd think that he'd be closed now, but I suppose he works his own hours. He sets well, his own hours. Is it late? Self-employed. We've, I mean, we have them going for a nice walk. And it's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, and, uh, and uh, Maybe so. And what I think's happening is it's clouds that are dark from and the, the storm. The, and the dusk. Is, yeah, I don't yeah. think it's necessarily uh, that late. That okay, late. okay. So you're, you're right, though. Please continue. But wait, let's just go back again. Let me look and see. 
just want to see the fields here. Well, it looks like it's summer, spring or summer, so it's not going to be getting that. Look, and the and the fields are full of. So it's not the not the fall or winter. It's yep. springtime. So it's going to be getting dark quite late. It's not going to be getting dark at at six yeah. o'clock Tintin's or seven. Where, Tintin's got uh, no coat on. Everything's fine. I don't know. I think it's kind of late if it's dark out. But anyway, All right, fair okay. enough. Okay, let's let's get off this. <laughs> Let's get off the Mr. Time, Cuts the Butcher podcast. The time, time in this. One of my favorite jokes now, though, because let's let's say that they go to investigate further. They find the man has vanished after they've run to, to telephone. Tintin goes running looking for him, and they find our friend Mr. Jolly and Wag hiding under a bush. And I just love that he says, "Mercy, have pity, please don't kill me. I wouldn't harm a fly. I'm just a simple fellow." And Haddock says, blistering barnacles, you don't have to tell me that. That's, that's a great joke, <laughs> by the way. Just explain what you're doing down here. Uh, I was hiding. Someone tried to murder me. I was walking to my car, suddenly bang. So I said to myself, I said, Julian, someone's trying to kill you. <laughs> yes. And then the police show up. And yes. it's, oh, it's a whole big mix-up. or trying to explain. What, no, this guy's not the body. Yeah. The body's missing. I was just t- talking to Calculus. Who's Calculus? Well, he's this guy with Tintin. Who's Tintin? Well, uh, Tintin's over there. Tintin's gone now. We're yeah. just going to cut to Tintin and let's follow Tintin for a while. Yeah. He's the, you know, he's the title character. So uh, Tintin is using his detective skills, seeing the, the wounded man got away through a hole in the hedge. And, uh, and uh, Snowy uh, is trying to find him, but he lo- loses the scent. Yes. And, uh, you know, because he was picked up by a car who was waiting for him, then uh, goes back to meet the police officers and mm-hmm. fills them in on the situation. So yes. looks like a hopeless muddle. Let's just go to the next morning, where uh, we have uh, the captain getting up, and we can tell what time of day this is. At least let's agree it's dawn. Yes, good. I see a robin singing. Although we don't know how long between. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> Did we lose all of you on this? It's okay. It's only page ten. It's going to get better. Uh, so a nice, nice sequence of the captain waking up, uh, yeah. brushing his teeth. And the, his bathroom mirror shatters. Yeah. Uh, goes running with a uh, toothpaste still in his mouth with a tin blop, bleep, bloop, bloop. Yeah. It tells us one thing, though. What's that? Calculus is an early riser. Yes. Because he's up even earlier operating his device, which <laughs> seems unaware is causing a great deal. You think someone would have mentioned it the I'm night before. I think he's not an early riser. I'm thinking he was up all night. Oh. I think he's an absent-minded professor. He's just been working through the night. Okay. doesn't have any idea what time it is. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Calculus tries to talk to Tintin, but he's got a mouthful of toothpaste. Uh, Tintin brings him a glass of water, rinses his mouth. It breaks! Yes, it shatters well. to the pieces. And, uh, Calculus says, we're bewitched! Uh, an hour later, uh, they're having, uh, breakfast. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a long time to wait for breakfast, an hour after, uh, that. But anyway, fair. <laughs> I'm not gonna get into that. Yes. I think we can all agree what time it is. Right. Uh, they're having they're having breakfast. It looks like it's a very nice breakfast. Yeah. And uh, then we see that uh, both the cat and Snowy are, are seem to be in some pain. Yeah. Uh, he's yowling. Uh, uh, Tintin runs out uh, to see that the milk truck is there, and every bottle of milk yeah. in it has shattered. It's a really nice image, actually. Uh, of the uh, milk truck and uh, Snowy is uh, making hay while the sun shines <laughs> yes, he's and drinking up the milk. Lapping up the milk. You'd think the cat would be in, in on that too, but mm. no dice. Yeah. Milko. <laughs> sure, why not? That's the name of the company. Yeah. Uh, very, uh, the milkman is very surprised by this and then they hear a tss and uh, look out. Yeah, I think that's supposed to be the sound of a tire sque- squealing, but I don't think that really works. No, it well sounds like a effect. tire letting out air. Yeah, actually. yeah. Uh, we see a car uh, screeching yeah. to a halt. Two gentlemen are inside. Uh, they have sh- uh, have stopped the car so suddenly that they bash their heads on the inside of the car. Yeah, the, uh, the yeah. famous Citroen 
2CV. Is it? Yeah. And uh, who could it be? Who could be doing that? I like that they're even surprised. <gasps> Thompson and Thompson, says Captain Haddock, as if he's surprised. Who would pull up and bang both their heads on top of the car roof? Yeah. And so, it's actually uh, a convertible roof. It's a, it's a, it was a cabriolet. So it's kind of a soft Yeah, soft it's a soft top, top yeah. But it, it's enough to smash your hats down on your head. Yes, exactly. If I was them, I would just travel with a shoehorn to just get my hat <laughs> off my head. Finally. So uh, they explain the situation to uh, Thompson and Thompson, what's going on, and then spot uh, Calculus, who uh, it seems to be going away. And he goes, no, no, I'm just going away. Okay, maybe he is. Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah. All right. Still the deathbed. He says he's flying to Geneva, where he's taking part in a Congress on Nuclear Physics. Yeah. And uh, to Geneva, but you never mentioned it to me before. No, not for very long. Only two or three days. I must go now. I've got uh, time to catch the 11:42 train. Goodbye, and off he goes. Yeah. Uh, we see a car waiting for him, saying, "Look out! Here he comes. Get the chloroform ready." That is never mm-hmm. a good thing mm-hmm. when someone is getting the chloroform ready for you. Yes. But then, who comes along? And a little, once again, unseen cameo. Mr. Cuts. Mr. Cuts drives by in a van and offers the professor a ride. So that's very nice of him. Well, and also, Mr. Cuts is up oh fairly early. It's a morning. You know, uh, he was up late because people were calling him. Apparently, he works till 10 o'clock at night. So he, uh, you know, he's not up that early because it's, what time is he? He plans to walk into town. I don't know how far the walk is. All right, let's talk about Mr. Cuts as as little as possible for the rest (laughs) of this podcast. I think everyone's had enough of Mr. Cuts. I don't think so. This, by I'm the way, this, the epi- of it. this episode is sponsored by Mr. Cuts Butcher Show. <laughs> You're the one doing it now. Yeah. Completely cuts. <laughs> so, uh, so Haddock is explaining to Thompson and Thompson, uh, the mystery, uh, that they're going through. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, and tell them not to tell anybody. Yes. And now, have they done this gag before? Where it's mum's the word, that's our motto. Yes, dumb's the word, that's our motto. It seems familiar. Feels like they've done that feels one before. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I was like, good, thanks for not saying anything about it. Yeah. Cut to next morning. Every newspaper. <laughs> every person it, from the town. It's the slowest news day <laughs> in the history of ever. Uh, uh, I don't think that would bring mystery, people out. If- mystery of Mon- Well, first of all, this uh, this is a six newspaper town. <laughs> and uh, every well, one of them TV, has the headline. Oh, I mean, they're close. They're close to Belgium. Wait, I mean, so they're close to Brussels, I should say. Is this it, what are we looking at? New New Newport News? Is that right? Am I reading that headline, uh, that title of that paper correctly? Well, how would you How would you say New York? That's New York News. Yeah, yeah. So the New York News. Yeah. This is a headline in the New York News. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, uh, it all leads to a beautiful, beautiful panel of uh, of uh, just so many people outside. They made a yeah. fair out of it. It's uh, yeah. uh, outside of Marlin Spike. Mm-hmm. You might be thinking, are we going to see Marlin Spike from a different angle? No, sir, you are not. You are just going to see the gate. You're going to see, see a fish and chip shop set yep. up. Uh, there's souvenirs. Uh, families have set up tents. Ice They're having cream. Picnics. There's an ice cream it truck is, there. It is absolutely gorgeous. There's even, even uh, Hergé appears. If you look in the left or the right-hand corner, he's smoking a cigarette and interviewing a townsperson. Oh, good Smoking. for him. Yep. He's getting a job as a reporter. Good for him. Yep. Little uh, Hitchcockian cameo from Hergé. Nice. We should do a list of all the uh, the cameos okay. that he makes in these books at some okay. point. <laughs> sure. And by we, I mean you. So, uh, oh, Haddock is not having this. He is uh, so upset uh, that uh, that this has all occurred. Uh, but he has, I see, changed his tie from yesterday. Good for him. Yes. He's gone from a tie to an ascot, it mm-hmm. looks like. He's a country gentleman he through and a, through. He is a fancy man. Uh, and uh, Tintin says, I think uh, somehow they're all going to be disappointed. 
you know, and he goes, uh, Tintin goes, just a thought, by the way. I know Calculus hates anyone going to his lab, but why don't we go take a look? All right, go, let's go in the lab. Which they do. Yes, they do. It's a nice lab, too. I mean, that shot on the, the, the second panel mm-hmm. on the second tier, that it's with that nice little bit of, uh, like, it looks like some sort of creeper. Uh, I don't know what kind of plant that is. Let's say it's, uh, ugh, I have no idea what it would be. No idea at all. I don't know the names of any plants, to be honest with you. <laughs> No, I don't is know it, any. Is it a rose? No, not a rose. I do. I do know rose. Grass. I do know rose and grass. That's good for me too. Yes. Done. That's All right, we're out. Dandelions. We nope. tried everything we can. Anyway, yeah. let's go to Calculus's lab. But it's a nice, uh, nice flower. Yeah, it's climbing very well up drawn on the trellis. Yeah. Uh, and when we go inside, we see a giant concave device. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the. <laughs> Haddock looks inside it and uh, sees his reflection, which is uh, distorted, and uh, he seems to be startled by distorted mirrors. He does have that problem, doesn't he? Yeah, hmm. mirrors uh, scare this man. <laughs> and uh, Tintin asks if he can smell anything, and it's like, uh, yeah, it does smell tobacco, but Calculus does not smoke. Blistering barnacles, that's right. Suddenly, in runs a masked character <laughs> yes. in a hat and a uh, coat, long coat, uh, who uh, socks... Uh, the captain in the uh, in the puss, yeah, and uh, knocks and, him down, and and runs off, losing his hat. Snowy jump lunges for the uh, for the masked uh, person, tearing uh, his coat uh, and uh, landing very hard on the ground. He gets away, but has left behind two items: one, a pack of cigarettes uh, that have something that looks like the word Madonna on it, but with a three. And a backwards N, as you have in countries that do that sort of stuff. So it makes me think of Macedonia. Macedonia, sure. Also also correct. Probably more correct than what I say. And a key. Uh, some sort of ignition key. So that's all uh, they know about him, aside from the fact that he has a punch like the kick of a mule, says <laughs> yes. the captain. Yeah. And there's another thing, too. Broken glass. Right. So it looks Blistering like, barnacles. It looks like uh, Calculus has been doing some experiments here. Uh, then we hear, hands up. Oop. Well, this is one of those dramatic turn, yeah. turns of the page. Turn the page. Flip who, to who could see it be? It's what terrible oh, that jerk. Oh, that guy. It's Jolion Wag. Ha ha ha. Wag. Ha ha. properly. That gag never fails, he says. Yeah, once again, how are you still alive? <laughs> I don't know. This will uh, cheer up. I brought you your insurance proposal. And so we have some fiddling, uh, 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 looking for insurance, while uh, Tintin notices uh, the name of a hotel on the on the uh, the cigarettes, and that's the hotel in Geneva where uh, where the calculus normally stays. Yes, the Hotel Cornavin. Right. So uh, so off they go, uh, accidentally wink, smacking uh, Wag in the face, and sending all the papers flying. It's a nice little image there. Yes. So uh, and the same day, off they go flying. Uh, we see someone watching them who who gets on the phone saying hello, Hotel uh, Cornavin. Herr uh, Shrivkov, Shrinkov, please. Thank you. Hello, Stefan. Yes, it's me. Uh, look, you'd better get a move on. His friends have left by air for Geneva. Yes, and then a nice shot. So here we have uh, an example of of the research that they did. They went to Geneva, to Switzerland, to do some research on this. The uh, Cointrain Airport in Geneva. Mm-hmm. Nice drawing of it. And we have a, let's say, let's say it's Roger Leloup drawing the... Uh, that Sabina, which was the Belgian Airlines, Sabina. Okay. Which, so it's a it's a Douglas DC six coming in for landing, at the uh, Quatrain Airport. Beautifully drawn. Yeah, it's really and not cool. not a hand of Hergé at all. <laughs> that Fair enough. There. But you know he did other work. So uh, they uh, get to the hotel, and uh, in the hotel we see some uh, some uh, threatening looking fellows 
uh, dressed in gray, uh, saying, here they come. You barge at them, push them around. They'll get angry, there'll be a fight, all to gain time. Oh, but a gendarme is coming by. Yes. And uh, the captain, who, by the way, now is dressed in his traditional haddock gear because, yep, like he's... Indiana Jones, it's time for the adventure it's to It's time begin. for the adventure, yep. It's wor- uh, his working clothes. Yeah, he asks the uh, gendarme, uh, you know, where the Hotel uh, Corneven is, and so across the road they go. Uh, but, uh, and, and are told calculus, uh, well, his key is not on the board, so he must be in his room. Once again, the Hotel Cornavin is actually a real hotel in, in uh, Geneva. Right. Accurately drawn down to the last degree, except for one fact, which they got wrong. There is no room 122 at this hotel. Why is that? This doesn't exist. There's not 22 rooms on the, on the first floor, I guess. Sounds like they don't want us to know about this room. <laughs> so Now, you might be asking yourselves, as if you're a young person, yeah. what's this, the key's not there situation, yeah. and here's what, here's what happens there, is you, uh, you take your key... Uh, to your room, and then when you're leaving, you hand it back in to the the desk clerk, yes. and they hang it up. Yes. So you don't take a key with you as you would in a normal hotel nowadays. Kind of handy though. What's that? You don't have to carry the key around with you. And... Right. It was a big bulky key, and also, what if you lose your key? Yeah. Then they're gonna have to change the locks. Yeah. Meh. We're not doing that. So of course, at this hotel, room 122 has become very popular. People are always requesting to stay in room 122 because that's where Professor Calculus stayed. Right. So the hotel has now put up a plaque. Just explaining that there is no room 122, and that, uh, but it does say, you know, this is where, that, you know, calculus left the room 122, blah, blah, blah. We're sorry that this room does not actually exist. They actually wrote to uh, Hergé and to tell him that the room didn't exist, but he never corrected it in any of the... How about if you do this, I'm just going to say this hotel, change one of the rooms to 122. I guess they could do that. Yep. Good. And uh, then everything's fine. Because you're just making it up. But to be fair, they just made it up. So, <laughs> hey... What's the matter? Uh, so they, we get a little mix up there. They're going up to see him, but he's just leaving. Uh, you know, uh, Haddock knows he's deaf, but he's pounding on the door. He says, and is oh, nothing. Goes back down, misses him again, uh, and uh, the clerk uh, at the front apologizes, saying he must have uh, gone out while my back was turned. Terribly sorry, sir. Um, but he tells him that uh, Calculus asked him the time of the trains uh, to Neon. Neon is that how you pronounce sure. it? Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, he, he said he'd take the 440. If you hurry, you can still catch him at the, at the station. So off they go. Now we see the goons that wanted to, uh, cause some trouble earlier. They trip, uh, Calculus. Not Calculus, sorry, Haddock. Yeah. And, uh, that's not take a drink. I did not call him Hergé. Uh, and it looks like they they want to start a fight, but, uh, Tintin, you know, we gotta go get Calculus. And so, mm, off they go. Uh, Haddock's so upset, he pushes the door very hard as he leaves, yeah. not realizing it was a revolving door, mm-hmm. and uh, everything goes flying everywhere. Out of uh, suitcases, shoes go flying, a bottle of booze, uh, everything's I guess everything's that's everywhere. his pajamas that I'm looking at. That makes sense now. I was wondering, is it his suitcase? Because Why does he have like a green dress shirt? But ah, it's his pajamas. That's I get right. it. And uh, yeah, why does he bring his own towel? Yeah, I guess you did in those days. I guess you did. It was a different time. It mm-hmm. looks like he almost has a lady's shoe there. But anyway, but... Slippers. Who am I to judge? Uh, bring, do those you, are his slippers. He brought his own cup. Huh, interesting. Uh, and a little alarm clock. Yeah, yeah, some nice drawing there of all that stuff. So, yeah. anyway. Off to the train station we go. I'll throw it over to you. So, yes, they head off to the uh, 
to the train station. Now, this is the Genève Cornavin railway station from the outside. But when they go inside, it's actually the uh, Gare de Lausanne, which is also in Switzerland, also a Swiss station. But I don't know why they decided to draw a different interior. I guess the one for the Genève Cornavin wasn't very aesthetically pleasing because that's a really elaborate drawing of a, inside of a railway station yeah. for one panel of a guy saying, train to Nyon, you're too late, sir. It's gone already. So they missed their train. Now they're kind of stuck. So now they have to find an alternate way to get there. So they do what any person would do. They r- race back to the hotel. Mm-hmm. Discover. Because uh, if uh, there's one thing Tintin likes doing, it's retracing his steps. Yes. He does that a lot. Yes. So they head back to the hotel and they look to see who Professor Calculus called while he was staying there. They find a number in Neon. So they know he's going to Neon now. So they have the number. So uh, then uh, Tintin finds out the address. They run outside, get in a taxi and take off. Yes. Asimka Arand. That's the name of that, that taxi. I was curious what kind of uh, car it was. So it took me quite a while to figure it out, actually. But yeah, it was actually made, it was a, a company that, that was owned by Fiat hmm. called Simca. It's very strange because they're making cars and competing against themselves. They also sold cars in France and the rest of Europe, but they had this other company as well. It's kind of odd. And they, uh, as they drive along, they run off the road. Yes, by now, Citroën 15. Now it's a weird, uh, well, maybe it's not weird. That's not the correct term. But a bit of a different panel on the very bottom middle. Uh, to, to, you get a close-up of the driver's face and his reaction with Tintin, uh, the captain, and Snowy in the background. Yeah. It doesn't look like the type of panel. You don't normally get that kind of close-up yeah. of a character. We in have, no, we have before, though. Remember we have. In the been, shooting star, there's yes, a sequence like that, too. But it's odd. It is odd. And it's also odd to hear uh, Tintin yelling, help, help, help. It doesn't doesn't say that in the French version. It's more like he's just kind of yelling. Yeah, that would make more sense. Yeah. The help, help, help doesn't seem to be in Tintin's yeah. character. Uh, they drive off into uh, what looks like a lake. Yeah, once again, this is more of the research that Hergé did. He actually went driving along this roadway. And drove into a lake? Well, he wanted to find a place around Lake Geneva yeah. where they could actually be driven into the water. Cause, wow, okay. Because most of it is has villas and stuff along it. So there's... So he finally found a space where it could actually happen, and this is like shows shows that spot of that that time. It's probably gone now. It's probably been turned into uh, condominiums. But at that time, there was an empty empty spot of greenery that people are apparently allergic to because they have to get knocked over. But uh, yes, the car gets driven into the water. And what's yeah, what's interesting about this sequence, and I think why he went for the close up is is if when you're reading this book, if you think about it in terms of of film, a lot of it is set up in a way that's very filmic. Like it's there's a how he does his angles, close-ups, pullbacks, extreme close-ups for this sequence where he wants their reactions to the, what's right. happening. And then the shot of the, the, the car going into the water. And then we do this quick cut to the people gathered around and we know that time has passed because people have parked their cars and got out of them. So you know that quite a bit of time has passed before an- anything's happened. There's these yeah. bubbles coming up. And uh, no one has decided to dive in to save them. Oh, so they're, they're wearing all, suits. So they're all jerks. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Take off your suit and go try to save somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so up come uh, the captain and uh, Tintin. Yep. Uh, Tintin's asking about the driver and Snowy, but uh, but uh, the captain didn't see. So, so so Tintin goes back, rescues the driver, good man. Yep. Uh, does not see Snowy, and then we see him being pulled up by a swan, and then we get his only speaking line. Yes. Which is, it, it looks like the swan's trying to to eat him, sees his tail, and uh, Snowy's like, uh, "Swan's dinner, I ask you." So yes. now everyone on the shore helps them up out of the water. Thanks a lot, people, bystanders. Uh, and uh, they're told, I saw it all. The roadhogs, they uh, swerved deliberately. If they wanted to push you into the lake, they couldn't have done it better. Uh, the driver comes round. He's okay. 
And Tintin says, uh, thank goodness, look here. There's something I must ask you to do for me. Uh, would someone please take us to Neon? It's terribly urgent. We'll uh, leave our names with you to give to the police. So they do that. Yep. And a half hour later, they, they, get, a, they get a ride in a Rover 75. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And that guy gets some soaking wet seats. <laughs> True enough. Hopefully he had the windows rolled down. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, so it uh, gets let off there in Neon. Uh, we see the, they did have extra towels in their suitcases. They could have sat on those. <laughs> they could have. That's a good point. Uh, so uh, then we see the guys that tripped him earlier. Uh, once again, uh, it says, By the whiskers of Curvitash, it's them. They escaped. Run them down, Stefan. And this time, don't miss. That's a good page turner. <laughs> it is a good t- page turner. Only they miss. Yep. Pretty uh, quickly. Yep. Uh, Tintin pushes the captain out of the way. Uh, and uh, he notices that it's the Citron 15 that pushed us into the lake. Yeah. A lot of swears. Captain's uh, style <laughs> swears. Yes. Uh, and uh, come along, Captain, says Tintin. Let's hope we can get there before it's too late. Here we are. Immediately, next panel. Let's hope we can get there. Here we are. Well, speaking of the cinematic, I think the sequence really does kind of show that. Um, for one thing, this villa was an actual villa in Neon. They just, when they went there, they took some photos of it for, for reference. Uh, but I like the fact that they show them walking towards it. Then they have that kind of bird's eye view looking from the very, actually over the house at them walking through the yeah, gate. Yeah, that's a really nice shot. Yeah, it is. And so it kind of, and then them coming to the door. I just like how that kind of establishes everything. And then what's really good, of course, is that uh, the captain's ringing the door. Tintin wanders away. The captain continues. Oh, I hear someone inside. Oh, Tintin, some they're they're here. And then he opens the door, and he's shocked. He's shocked. What what will happen we, we, next week? What will we see? What is the captain seeing? Oh, it's just Tintin yeah. popping his head out the door. Coming quickly, the back door is open. Yes. And then it was like, all right. Snowy finds not a sound. Not oh, a sorry. sound. Snowy does find something. What does Snowy find? He finds Calculus's umbrella and barks. Breaking the whole uh, not a sound uh, rule, actually. Yeah, but you know he's found something very, very important. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, then, then they they walk into a room, seeing a bottle and two uh, glasses. Mm-hmm. Someone was expecting us, says the captain. Yes. Uh, and then uh, Tintin finds a book, uh, but uh, but Captain fixes a light, plugs it in, and then looking in the book, it looks like the devices that we saw in calculus. That's right. Lab. And this is an actual photo from uh, the Leslie Simon book. In fact, Ergy. He doesn't hide where he got this information from. He has the cover of the book right there. This is the actual cover. Is this where he lifted the the rocket design? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not totally lifted. I mean, he just, a little bit of it looks like it, but not totally. But yeah, well, there, you can see, see the... When you yeah. see this rocket, there's not That's a lot right. of rockets that look like that. That's right. That's right. Well, we talked about why. I mean, that wasn't uncommon to have that yeah. uh, coloring. But yeah, and so the only thing he took off of it there's a was a swastika on the original cover, and he removed that for this... Good call. Yeah, that's right. But other than that... By the way, if you're trying to make the decision to remove a swastika or not, yeah, do it. Mm-hmm. New story. So yeah, I just like the fact that he, this book is, he doesn't hide the fact of where did I get this information from? Well, here it is, right in this book, this actual book, German research in World War II. And it makes it more legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the captain is taking this time to drink some wine, uh, but uh, as often happens, he gets startled and spits it out. Uh, yeah. We hear, a, ha ha ha, in fact, you put your head right into the lion's mouth. They hear so, a voice from the side, flicking the page, because yes, drama. we got to see good, what's going to happen. That's a good page ender. Uh, turns out it's the radio. Yes. Uh, now you will pay dearly for this. Ha, 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 And then uh, uh, Tintin goes, great snakes, that cigarette, another. You know, he's found a cigarette in an ashtray, and it's the same brand. Yes, that Macedonia. Right. Then here's clang, clang. Uh, and there's something knocking against the central heating pipes. So they go down to the basement to take a look. Uh, Snowy uh, brings the uh, calculus's umbrella, uh, not realizing you don't hold things uh, vertically. 
uh, a horizontally, sorry, one going through a door. But that's the question, though. Was it common in those days to pile all your cleaning supplies at the top of the stairs to your <laughs> to your basement, though? That's an interesting, like, there's a bucket yeah. with a vacuum piled on top of it and then a bunch of other, like, cleaning equipment there. Maybe. It's curious. But let's just say Snowy hits it and it all goes falling down. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they see lying on, I guess it's coal, uh, someone. And it's, uh, who are you? Who am I? Yes. Sapristi. I'm Professor uh, Topolino. He was brutally assaulted uh, by calculus. Do you know what Topolino means? Just for a little break. Nope. Little Mouse. It was actually the name of Mickey Mouse oh, in Italy. Is yeah. that where Topo Gigio comes from? Topo, that's right. There's a name of Mouse. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of funny. He names a professor after Mickey Mouse. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, he's got a good design there. I like him. Uh, he's brutally assaulted by calculus. That does not seem correct no, at all. No, what's going on here? Uh, a little argument over uh, the captain saying, I refuse to... Calculus is our best friend, and I refuse to allow... Oh, uh, so he's a friend of yours. My heart is <clears throat> congratulations. What delightful people you know. It's very good and sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, that is good. I've just been tied up and kidnapped sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Tintin calms things down a little bit by having everyone go upstairs, and Mickey Mouse cleans himself off a little bit. I should say, Topolino cleans himself off a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was translating. Simultaneous translation. By the way, if you're if you're trying to imagine what, and you don't know what he looks like, this character, he's got the same facial structure and nose as uh, Gru from uh, Despicable Me. He's got that same round head and uh, pointy nose. Hmm. I don't know who that is, but okay. It's a very popular series of animated films. Okay. Uh, the, the, the Minions version of that just came out. Okay, uh, so... Thank God my daughters are too old for that. <laughs> Fair enough. We're not going to minion bash here. A quarter of an hour later, uh, they're all sitting and having some wine. And to sum up, last Thursday, the, the glasses were broken. Uh, explaining all this to the gentleman. Uh, talking about all, uh, all this uh, to him. And at the uh, Hotel Cornavin, we had a row with a strange man on the way from Geneva. A black citron uh, tipped us into the lake. And uh, all through all of this, uh, Haddock is dropping subtle hints. He would like to have some wine. Yes. Uh, while Tintin is uh, filling us in on what we already sort of know. I, I assume that this is the wine that was sent, the uh, the valet wine that, that Charlie Fornara sent hope. from, yeah. yeah. And how the coal dust sure made him awfully thirsty. It what probably helped two? the research at the studios to have the, the wine there. Then uh, Tintin pulls out the uh, packet of cigarettes, asking, do you know the brand? And he says, that's the brand that Boris smokes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, uh, the captain is still working his way to drinking this wine through the whole thing. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's a 53, he says, after they're talking. Yeah. Boris turns out to be this man's servant. He smokes very little and only those cigarettes. He gets them direct from uh, Borduria. Uh, he left uh, for home yesterday evening. They uh, sent a telegram. His mother had been taken ill. Meanwhile, through all of this, sure like some wine, please. Yeah. Uh, it's about a month since uh, he got the first letter from Calculus. Said he was on the verge of a sensational discovery, you know. Uh, uh, but it seems that the consequences of his invention so alarmed him, he wished to talk to this gentleman here, and he arranged to see him today. Uh, calculus arrived a little earlier than expected. They started to chat, bent down to pick up some papers, and there was Calculus brandishing uh, Kosh. I guess that would be like a bl- blackjack. Blackjack, yes. That's yeah. Right. And then it came uh, to in the cellar, bound and gagged. Uh, by this point, uh, uh, the captain has poured himself a glass of wine. And uh, Tintin, whipping his hand up quickly, knocks it out of his hand. <laughs> angry, angry Haddock, yeah. oh, wanting his wine. Oh, sorry. Not at all. <laughs> That's right. Scowl. 
And then they figure out, oh, it shows a picture of uh, our man, Calculus. Uh, that's not him at all. Yes, it wasn't Calculus who knocked you out. It was someone masquerading to be him. Uh, meanwhile, the real Calculus arrived. We cut to outside and see uh, the Citron yep. driving by, uh, saying there are only a few seconds to go, talking about the timing mechanism, and then a large explosion happens inside the house, uh, blowing, it looks like, a third of it up. Yes, quite a dramatic moment. That is a good cliffhanger. You, you actually mentioned that, uh, you, you said that you see the car, we actually cut back to them inside, still talking, mm-hmm. which is a nice way to set up what's happening, and then the boom happens. I like the French boom because it's baum. But uh, I'll go with a boom, too, I guess. All right. And then uh, up she goes, they say. A few minutes so th- later, so we then see we cut, these... Yeah, to the fire department coming. And uh, I just want to say, I know this is probably annoying, but it's a Willis uh, station wagon that they're driving the first car no, there. That's, that's why you're here. here. I, you know, I thought he brought in all these guys whose like, expertise was drawing cars and stuff like that. So at least we can do is recognize sure. their hard work. Uh, one hand is sticking out of the rubble, saying, help, we're under here. Uh, are you hurt? Don't know. Don't think so, but be careful. Uh, there's enough damage to be done without smashing this bottle. He's holding undearly to the bottle of wine. Yeah. Uh, hurry up. There was three of us in the house and a dog. Drinks the bottle dry, drops it. There. That's it. Now I can pass out happily. Off he goes. <laughs> and uh, they look through the others, uh, asking, and the, the fire department asking, like, are there injuries? They're all unconscious, except for the dog. Snowy, who runs in again to the rubble. Pulling out the umbrella of calculus. Yes. Uh, there weren't any casualties, uh, but uh, were there any casualties? Three. Two looked in very bad shape. Yeah. So, you know, uh, then we go to the next morning. Time for another brief cameo. Right, by Thompson and Thompson, who are dressed in traditional Swiss garb. Yes. Blending in. Perfectly. Uh, <laughs> yes. Blending in like a rainbow on a starry night. That's <laughs> right, yes. Blending in. I mean, if they were at a. Uh, at a historic site, they'd be fine, but... Uh, yeah, these guys, I don't know, they're costume designers, I tell you. It uh, would have been funny if they visited Paris and they dressed like Asterix. <laughs> they do appear in an Asterix comic in the future. Do they? That's yes, right, they I do. think, that's they right, do. they do. Uh, so uh, they, uh, they, you know, they... So Asterix appears in a later Tintin as well. Is that right? Yeah. Interesting. Crossover. Uh, they take a walk through the hospital, uh, talk about how shiny the floors are, slip fall, end up in the hospital themselves with terrible injuries uh, yes. to their head, their nose, and uh, uh, opposite arms. Yes. Just from a simple slip, but I guess, well, those Swiss and their cleanliness. If there's one thing I learned from Asterix, speaking of Asterix, is that the Swiss like to clean things. Mm-hmm. Their cheese is very good as well, I've heard. So, all right, throw it over to you. Uh, so now we have some important news, which is that they discovered that the man who was wounded on the uh, on the Marlin Spike property was Sildavian. It was a Sildavian national, and so we know that uh, we know that uh, who he's after, that he was part of this. Uh, <laughs> he's part of this uh, plot to kidnap Calculus, which I, th- I think they suspect which is which is happening, and then of course they're left at the hospital, which is good. I think I like these little dip-ins and dip-outs by the Thompsons, rather than having them there all the time. Yeah, and they were semi-competent. They gave a bit of information, which is what we want. And there we are. <laughs> semi-competent. Yeah. They give a, I mean, they're going to let the guy go, but we're going to find out a little bit more about them. They're going to push the plot forward, which is so, good. Yeah, so now we have a little bit of an of a exposition dump. dump here. So Tintin says this is how I see it. So Calculus had perfected an ultrasonic instrument capable of destroying glass from a distance. So it could be a terrible weapon in the wrong hands. So he writes to Topolino. He describes the work to him. The letter is intercepted by Topolino's servant, Boris, 
who then tips off his country's secret service. But, he's Bordurian, this Boris, but the Saldavians also get wind of this. So they are both working against each other to try and capture this information from Calculus. So Calculus arrives in Geneva, so and they are close behind. And since they're making life difficult for these spies, their lives are at risk as well. So the first thing he says, the first thing we have to do is find Calculus. But how are they going to do it? They don't know. Suddenly, a Mercedes 300 drives by, and someone throws a cigarette out the window, which, by the way, is littering. And uh, as he says, the fat-headed fire raiser. See? Exactly. But and, we see that the brand on the cigarette <gasps> is the same again. Yes. I like that he's shaking his fist at them and also giving them the sort of the finger. In a he way. is a little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if that means the same thing in uh, Belgium as it does in North America. Yeah. I don't know. Probably now. But um, cause I think it's traveled, that, that, that gesture. So then uh, they discover it's the same brown. So that was a, a diplomatic car. So now they're saying, we have to find the Bordurian embassy. They find it, Le Signe, uh in Roll, which is a town in Roll, which is a few miles from Nyon. And Le Signe, I guess that's uh, the Swans. Okay. Signets, isn't that a Sounds baby? Sounds right, anyway. yeah. Uh, well, You're the one that reads it in French, I, friend. You know, I don't know everything. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say that right now. I don't know everything. Uh, so then they go to, they're going to go out to roll and uh, spy out the land. So We cut to that night. They're in a boat, and the captain seems to have brought along some DDT. Yes. Uh, which he's uh, spraying and at the all classic, the mosquitoes. Classic old-fashioned spray bottle. Yep. Or spray can, I guess it would be. Yeah, here comes an absolute whopper, spraying, 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 uh, saying, listen to the din, but it turns out it's actually a helicopter. It's going overhead. Landing yep. on the lawn, uh, Tenson says to moor the boat, we'll have a look. Guys, Let's guys, see. it's a Bell 47, it's a Bell helicopter. Okay. Yeah. Good. You, oh, you're like one, like one of those adorable kids who knows the name of every dinosaur <laughs> and just has to tell you. Well, I can tell you more, is that the Belgian airline, Savina, they also had some Bells in their fleet so that's probably why they were able to they use that one because they were able to use them for research they're all all based in belgium no don't ever be ashamed of uh you know of, of saying these facts this people listen to this uh to know stuff not because they don't want to know stuff okay you know it's that or you're bashing glossy paper so i'll take that i don't like glossy paper oh i understand that anyway i'm looking at some right now <laughs> uh so someone's trying to rescue calculus they see that uh and they're not sure uh who to uh who to fight there uh, I like this line, which is a uh, captain saying, "How do we how do we tell friends from enemies?" And and Tintin, go for the ugliest. <laughs> you know why? Because Tintin subscribes to the Dick Tracy school <laughs> of right. crime fighting. Yeah, yeah. If they have a hawk nose or a flat head, yep, or a pruned face, if their skin is really if pruny, half of their face is distorted in some way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If they look like a mole, our mouse. Yeah, absolutely. Go for them. It's the same <laughs> thing with the uh, same thing with James Bond. If you've got some sort of injury, uh, you're a terrible person. Yeah. Uh, any kind of permanent handicap. Well, get them. You know, overcompensating. It's a problem. Indeed. It's a problem. So, uh, and they go, uh, actually, and I like the captain going, which has the ugliest mug? It looks 50-50. <laughs> so he just starts knocking heads together. <laughs> uh, recognizes a thug who knocked him out in the laboratory back at Marlin Spike, even without the uh, mask. He mm -hmm. gets that. Yeah. Uh, man with a cigarette. Uh, Tintin uh, tries to get the, uh, tries to, to get calculus, uh, saying, uh, quick, captain, uh, come on. Uh, and uh, captain uh, sprays the guy. Uh, who got who knocked him uh, or hit him in the face with uh, the DDT? Then gives him a bunch of fives. There we go, right, in the, <laughs> right in the mush. Yep. Meanwhile, uh, uh, Tintin is following the uh, other kidnappers to the 
who we think is because we forgot to mention that there's two groups here. Yeah. We have one group that were escorting calculus away from the Bordurian embassy down towards the helicopter when suddenly they're set upon by another group. And so they run and join into this fight. So Tintin joins the group that kind of ran in and intercepted calculus. They're running down towards the boats because when the character says no same boots in some sort of dialect, most likely based in the Bruxellois dialect of uh, Brussels. Yeah. Because Hergé loved to uh, loved to use that as the root basis of his foreign languages. So uh, Tintin. Uh, so so yeah, they they've got uh, calculus who's calling for his umbrella. His umbrella. And Tintin says, we must wait for the captain. Uh, then uh, Tintin gets smacked on the, on the head with a club uh, and knocked unconscious as uh, these fellas take away uh, the professor. Yeah. Uh, captain's so upset, he's squirting his DDT at him. <laughs> well, calling them bashy bazooks, as yeah. always. So Tintin and the captain have a good idea, which is to uh, steal the helicopter. Yeah, really good idea. So they take off in the Bell 47. Uh, unfortunately, and a mosquito lands on the captain's nose. He uh, squirts himself in the face with more with DDT. <laughs> Just drop it, Captain. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I like his coffee, though. It seems very real. Yeah. That hook, hook, hook. Uh, so, yes, they're being shot at by from the boat. They keep on chasing after them, though. And then they, uh, Tintin suggested to the captain that he radio for the police so they and, can intercept them on the other side of the lake. And they get someone on the radio. Wonder oh, who that would that's be. luck. That's Lots luck. so lucky, yes. And who they get. Hooray, an answer. It's Wag, who doesn't believe their story at all and thinks yes. it's just a great joke. Yes. So uh, we cut back and forth. Uh, well, you know, the... you can't teach your grandmother to suck eggs. Yeah, there's a lot of weird things that he says. Y- yeah, you can't teach your grandmother to suck eggs, you know. <laughs> anyway, wait, that's not something that anyone says at all. I think they do. I think that's an old expression. Okay, fair enough. There's a lot of things he says here that don't work in modern context. <laughs> um so, uh, the, the chase is on with the helicopter uh, chasing the car. The captain's saying, please call the police. Uh, this is well done here, though, I think. Yeah. Because you have the boat coming into shore, and so you, you know the boat's coming in. And so this having calculus narrating the action, because it would be very hard to show them getting out of the boat, getting into a car, and then driving away. And so you just cover that with, with uh, Wag and, and captains back and forth and captain narrating what's happening. So uh, Very clever. Yeah. So the helicopter uh, almost gets uh, caught into power cables, just misses them, uh, scoops up a tent, uh, drops that tent onto a car, uh, uh, blinding it, uh, sending it uh, crashing. Well, not crashing, but uh, just blinding it. Just want to point out, those are Boy Scouts. They had their tent removed. Very nice. Uh, They land the helicopter uh, down in front of the car. By the way, all through this time, uh, the WAG is just loving this uh, comedy bit that the captain's doing about being in trouble. And oh my gosh, it's just fantastic. And uh, that's a 1955 Chrysler New Yorker. It's a very beautiful car. Uh, So uh, it uh, dodges, it uh, swerves to avoid the helicopter. I just want to point out, there is a rope. Oh, they must pass it. That's on the other side. Okay, forget it. Okay, well, here's a reference. They do drive over the fences. Explain this reference to me. Okay. Thundering Typhoons, they must have a Jack Brabham at the wheel. Yes, a famous race car driver of that time. Very nice. Asked and answered, sir. Uh, uh, Tintin uh, says we better clear the road in case of accidents and pushes the helicopter out of the way. He cares. He doesn't just leave it lying around. No. I think James Bond ever goes, hey, let's just make sure there's no accidents (laughs) on this area where I just fought Dr. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, he doesn't care. To be fair, he fought Doctor No on an island, an uninhabited island. So it seems unlikely. Was it uninhabited? That people Dave? carelessly was going to it? step. I don't know. It was. Wasn't was it? it? Wasn't it? Was it? It was. Was it? it? I guess we got to listen to the James Bonding podcast <laughs> and find out. Uh, so they continue on foot, uh, trying to hitchhike. Uh, people keep driving by. 
not a bad idea. He's an angry sailor. I don't know if I'd pick him up. Uh, uh, they, it looks like a car is about to stop, but the captain goes, no, quick, into the woods. Uh, hurry, get down, lands in a puddle. Uh, That's great. He thinks it's the same Citron. Dies face first one. into a puddle. Yeah. The Covered one, in weeds. I know. The one puddle in the woods that uh, does not look good. And we see uh, inside the car, it's a hen-pecked husband saying, But I promised you, my pet, there were two people in the road who signaled to me. And I say, Jules, that's the la- it's time you went to the occult. I want to say oculist, not the occultist. <laughs> that's it. And visited Elisha Crowley. <laughs> that's right. Do as thou wilt. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that uh, he seems a little, uh, you know. So uh, they drive off. Uh, they're soaked. Uh, and uh, and the captain says, "Well, the sun will dry me off soon. These guys have been soaked already. They drove off a road into yeah. a lake. Yeah. So you know, uh, let's, let's just point out that Tintin is not soaked. Just the captain. Yeah, Tintin did not, Tintin did not jump into a puddle. No, but Tintin was at the bottom of a lake. Yeah, that was earlier. Not too long I think ago. by this point he's he's dried off. He's been in a hospital. That is true. He's been through a lot of business. Yeah, You're absolutely yeah. correct. Uh, the bomb blast probably dried him off completely. Sure. All that hot air rushing past him. Then the rain comes. Uh, they wish they had an umbrella going, oh, of course we do. Snowy's got the umbrella. They're about to open it, but then the sun comes out. Mm. Well, important to know, maybe. We'll remember that, that they didn't open the umbrella. Uh, uh, the captain sees a tobacconist, going to go buy an ounce or two, uh, you know, and gets hit by a car. <laughs> And you know what we learned from that? Don't smoke. Yes. It's the first lesson. <laughs> right. Uh, he yells at the man, uh, getting spit all over his window. Uh, it was, uh, Mamma mia, it was you, basta. Now you uh, spit all over my window. Ah! Uh, window washing. Uh, I just want to point out, basta means enough. Good. So, the man's driving, Alantia Aurelia. Very nice. Uh, Tintin Alantia. mentions that uh, they're chasing some car bandits. The guy's all on board for this. Let's get inside. Yeah. And it's time to start driving. And we get a nice driving sequence here. Really good driving sequence. Yeah. Uh, he drives through some uh, uh, wet tar, splashing people with that nice, hot, wet tar. <laughs> yes. uh, that's a I nice like thing. some wet creosote in the face. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, he, he hears a sound. You know, click, it's like, click, what's click, that, click, what's click, that click, clicking? Click. You know, it's something around the pistons. Uh, the valves? No, no, it's just uh, the captain's teeth chattering through this uh, terrible drive. Uh, a lot of bashing around, uh, driving very, very quickly uh, through bumps, a village, yeah. and then a, a really gorgeous shot of driving through a village. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, right through the, uh, well, not just driving through a village, but driving through market day in yeah. the village. So, they have so we see uh, people and and uh, animals, dog and c- cows, cows running yeah. out of the way. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, scene. Yeah. Uh, they're stopped by a gendarme who uh, says, uh, you barbarian, going through a built-up area like that at this speed, you'll pay for this, your name. Do you want to do the name? or do you No, I was, I was hoping you would do it. I was looking forward to this all today. Arturo, Benedito, Giovanni, Giuseppe, Pietro, Arcangelo, Alfredo, Cartofoli, Di Milano. That's pretty to good. To which the guy goes, I, um, well, don't do it again. And off he drives. The guy looking a lot like uh, a lost Thompson triplet. Yes, he does. And also doing a Don Knotts face. Yeah. Um, oh! This driver may be a reference. Uh, and this, this is from Michael Farr. He suggests that uh, it might be a reference to an Italian pianist at the time who was famous in the gossip columns, famous in the papers for his love of fast driving and fast cars. And I imagine fast women. But his name was uh, Arturo Benedetti Michelangelo. So it's kind of uh-huh. similar, kind of similar nice. to uh, Arturo Benedetti Giovanni Giuseppe Pietro Arcangelo Alfredo Cartofoli da Meliano. 
Oh, I see. You're gonna you're gonna make me do it, and then you're gonna show off like that. Is that how it goes? No, I want you hey, to do it. Hey, why don't we both? You play have to the, do that fast. Why don't though? we both play the piano? Okay, all right. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Oh, that's nice. Let me show you how I do it. <laughs> all right. So, uh, so they're uh, still on the chase. I didn't uh, do that well. Uh, you were fantastic. Uh, crossing a barrier, uh, just making it. Uh, finally, uh, they pull over. They, they get it, and uh, it's uh, not them at all. No, it doesn't look like uh, this is correct at all. They check the boot or trunk, uh, <laughs> and uh, nothing's inside. What yeah. the heck? Uh, they get a good yelling at uh, from Arturo Benito Giovanni, Giuseppe Pietro, Arcangelo, wanna... Alfredo, Let's... Cartoffo de Milano. You got to let me do it. You can't oh, that stop was me good. halfway through. That was good. That was good. Okay. Uh, I just want to pause for a second. All right, let's Let's pause. go back to this car. Take the pause that we're Well, let's just spoil. Spoilers. This car is the car that calculus is hidden in. This yeah. is the car that went around them. Yeah. When it drove around a helicopter on a road, drove off the road through a fence. Yeah. Through a couple of fence posts. Sure. Where's why isn't it a little damaged? Like wouldn't that be a clue that there's some the grill work is damaged on the car? Yeah. They also mentioned that the seat was was fairly high, and I don't quite see that in this either. There's no real showing of that. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, yes, you're right. Mistake. Yeah. Let's just shut the book now. Wrap it up. <laughs> I just, I just think it. Uh, yeah, it's just. A, You're right. It should be a little damaged. Should be a little damaged. I should agree. be able to say, "Hey, this car looks like it was driven through a." Right. So uh, they get scolded by this gentleman, and uh, he drives off. And they sit by a tree, annoyed. Uh, the captain is lighting his pipe, even though he seemed to say earlier he needed tobacco. Did not go to the tobacconist, but still has enough tobacco for his pipe. Sure. Uh, and then Tintin, what could have happened? Did we follow the wrong car? Or did Calculus stay in the motorboat? Yeah. And then, ah, uh, he realizes it. Uh, under the back seat. You know, it was rather high up. That's where they've hidden him. And uh, we let ourselves get hoodwinked like a couple of kids. Ah, come on. <laughs> so, uh, so Tintin spots an airplane. Looks like it's landing. Is there an airfield near here? Okay. And they, they go to take a look. It's come down in a, in a meadow. And, uh, they say, look behind those trees. The Chrysler. There's calculus. They're putting him uh, aboard the plane. So we're spotting this all happening. Mm-hmm. Tinted runs for the plane, uh, running faster, faster, trying to. And oh, he no, he. That's good though. I like it. that he doesn't. I just like that he misses. Like, I think yeah. that's a great moment in any kind of adventure story when the person, it doesn't work. He's not Tom you know? Cruise. He's not going to grab the side of the plane. And yeah, go up and for climb, a go up the sky. It's kind of like in that movie Breakdown, the Kurt Russell film. Right? There's a scene where he's trapped in a restaurant and he goes into the bathroom. And he like searches around in there for something to help him escape the situation, finds nothing. Just leaves the bathroom and goes back out into the restaurant. I just like that. That yeah. you know sometimes there isn't an answer there. Uh, I just want to point out once before we go on that this is a Beechcraft Bonanza plane with a distinctive V tail uh, called a rudder vader. Nice. Yeah, because it uh, replaced the rudder, the separate rudder elevator of most planes with a, just a V. Tintin um, uh, stops himself by going into a haystack. Yes. Uh, Snowy follows to help him and gets uh, stuck with a whole bunch of needles in the nose. Uh, Meanwhile. Tintin finds his way out. I hear, help, help. Save me. Great snakes. Poor captain. He's uh, stuck on some barbed wire. Yes. And his clothes are torn now. He'll never be able to wear those clothes again. The, the rest of the... Uh... Oh, no, they're fine. Well, a few minutes later. No, let's look at those clothes. We can see they are torn in the back. See? Oh, yeah. Yep. You're right. Uh, but those those clothes do but, have a healing factor. But the next morning, they're fine. Well, yeah, but he, uh, he, he probably has other clothes. I didn't see any in his suitcase. His suitcase he, was entirely spilled all over the place. He had enough money to buy tobacco. He's got enough money to buy... <laughs> He's kind of a rich guy. I guess that's true. Uh, so, yeah, the next morning in Geneva, 
Uh, Captain's saying, you buy uh, the tickets, I'll get some papers, and I'll put a car in, I'll call in through uh, Marlin Spike. Mm. Uh, he then trips, and we see it's the, oh, those Carpathian bashy bazooks. <laughs> it's the second time you've crossed my path. I hope for your sakes there won't be a third, you two timing tartar twisters, you. And saying, I got my eye on you before walking right into a pole and having a sign fall down saying, see clearly with better specs. Not just walk into a pole, bent the pole. Yep, with his, his face. With his face. Yeah, you know why? Because Thompson and Thompson aren't around. Yeah, I guess that's true. Right. So uh, the captain uh, gets a newspaper, brings it up to Tintin, and uh, shows him a headline saying, uh, there's a Bordero-Sildavian incident. Uh, Bordurian fighters force down a Sildavian plane for violations of their airspace. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Clow, the Sildavian, uh, Sildavia, they protest that it was unprovoked tashist aggression. Interesting. So they got their uh, tickets and say we don't need them. We're going to now. You got to pronounce this word. Uh, we're going to to. Uh, whoop, where does it say that? Oh, tickets for Cloud. He says no, we don't need them. We're going to Shod now. Shod is that how you do it? I okay, say that, fair yeah. enough. Why not? Uh, okay, we're making it up. So is he? Unfortunately, the flight's fully booked. Uh, but you know, maybe if uh, anyone doesn't show up you for can, the flight, you can tell that Shod is a Bordurian word, though. You know how you can tell that? Uh, the accenting goo. It has an. It has a mustache on it. <laughs> Very nice. So uh, the captain decides to take this time to call Marlin Spike, uh, but ends up talking to a little cameo. Finally, we get to see cuts the butcher, butcher speaking. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Very well done. Uh, so and does, a good drawing of him too. It is a good drawing of him. Then he uh, gets through to his uh, home. Uh, thinks it's Nestor. Isn't? Who is this? Wag! It's Wag, the world's most terrible person. That's right. You old humbug, you didn't half give me a laugh with your helicopter chase. What What am I doing here? Well, it turned out uh, it turned out nice. So I brought the wife for a little visit to the country seat. Ah, uh, yes, who, Nestor? I'll hand him over to you. Uh, he's got a good joke to tell you. Hey, Nestor, it's your boss. And uh, we uh, we see the reaction of the captain, which is screaming, what, very loudly, so loudly, he shakes the telephone booth. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the professor's laboratory, uh, Calculus's laboratory, has been stripped, the apparatus to absolutely everything. Yeah, quite so, last night. Yes, sir. The police came this morning. Uh, no clues. And then, uh, oh, back where uh, Wag's back on the phone. You know, Wag, don't worry, old boy. It's better than a slap in the eye with a wet kipper, as my uncle... Uh, <laughs> Anatoly used to say. This Anatole. Anatole, oh boy. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, his insurance is ready. <laughs> this was that this was the page where actually the uh magazine version switched from the full page mm-hmm. uh to the now the two page stretched out version with three tiers rather than a full page of four tiers. Uh once again, I don't know why they did that. If someone knows, let me know. So uh I would like to know too. There are two vacant seats in the plane. Uh, but the coach leaves in five minutes. So they go, yep, and they get on the coach. Uh, and Snowy spots a uh, umbrella, thinking it's the umbrella, uh, takes it off from a snooty man mm-hmm. who uh, does a nice uh, fall with a bunch of flowers in his hand. Yeah. Uh, they get onto a sour bus. It's a nice I guess it's bus. a German bus. It's a cool bus, isn't it? It's very yeah, interesting. Yeah, very cool. I like it a I lot. I guess it was a kind of a coach or a touring bus of, the, of that, that epoch. The captain throws the man back his umbrella, hitting him in the face with it. And then we get some, we get a really nice bit of small physical business going on. Yes. Uh, where uh, it's uh, the captain's uh, sticking plaster that's been on his nose, the bandage. Yeah. Uh, it's coming off, tries to take it off, uh, stuck to his hand, shakes it, lands on a lady's hat. He takes it off. It's on this guy's hand. Uh, he throws it off. It now lands on the captain's hat. 
just good. I love that he says, well, let's get rid of that. In the, in the French version, he says, bon voyage, little bandage. But um, this, this, it, what we see here is the uh, touch of Jacques Martin. This was his sequence mm-hmm. that he added to the story. Uh, at least he takes credit for it, and I won't. I was why, but why doubt someone? Where does he take credit for it? Where does he take credit for it? Oh, he just in, in interviews he said that was my. Oh, okay. It, my my contribution to the story was the bandage sequence. Okay. Uh, a little bit that he was proud of. Well, it should be. It's uh, one of my favorite bits in this thing. Yeah, it's very good. It's very good. So, uh, so on their they're on they their take way. off in the exact same airplane they landed in in Switzerland. It's a DC. Or the, yeah, the DC-6, the Yeah, uh, hoping they'll Douglas. find uh, calculus. And then they're like, oh, I found the sticking plaster again. <laughs> yeah. Trying yeah. to get it off, trying to get it off. Meanwhile, in Geneva, uh, they, uh, the bad guys there are asking about, you know, uh, what's going on. And they say, I want a shod, is that it? Uh, 32218. Yeah, shod. What? A delay? But it's urgent. I Good. Try and hurry things along. And uh, then we have a whole series of other people having the bandage land on them. <laughs> Yeah. Which is very cute. Very good. Very well done. While we're cutting back to... Uh, a terrible phone line. Yes. Hello, it, it eventually, hello. by the way, ends up on the captain's uh, thumb. Or the co-pilot's thumb. Yeah. Uh, hello, hello, can you hear me, Crackle? For, hello, Zod. Hello, I fart. Hello. And then we have the first appearance of uh, Sponge. Uh, Colonel Sponge, who uh, was based... His looks were based on Hergé's brother, Paul. Paul Remy, who, uh, when he was younger, was the model for Tintin. Mm-hmm. And as he grew older, his hair receded till he only had like a little tuft of hair on the top of his head. Mm-hmm. And uh, because he was always, he's always been called Major Tintin when he was younger, he uh, he cultivated a, a Eric von Stroheim type of look. And so uh, Erge took that look and turned him into a uh, sponge, which of course is uh, a slang word in Belgium for sponge. Nice. Yeah. So uh, if you want to know what Tintin looks like when he grows up, that. Yes, that's exactly right. All right. Well, I'll, throw, I'll throw it over you. You continue this a little bit more. Uh, yeah. So they're still trying to communicate with each other. I just love how you have this hopeless communication with the phone frizzing and buzzing combined with then cutting back to the airplane with the uh, bandage making its way up and down the, the, the flight or through the passengers. Hello. Fr- hello. I can't uh, clack, clack. What? Fr- crack. Can't speak up. What? And then 348. The plane is flying erratically because now the captain is trying to shake the bandage off of his thumb. And then they're saying, yes, Haddock, a sort of a sea dog with a clack beard. Yep, no, beard. He has a beard. Yes, yes, beard. On it goes. Finally, they land. So the point is, is that they're having some trouble communicating this information back to Berduria. So they, the secret police don't know that, that Haddock and Tintin are landing. They just about make it out of the airport, except finally the call comes through. We see someone standing, and we find the curvy Tash the symbol of Kuritash is on a red armband with a white circle, but with a mustache in the center rather than a swastika. So very reminiscent <laughs> of, yeah. And so they almost get out of the airport. They thought they were going to be stopped. But then, stop, they're told. You, Captain Haddock, and you, Tintin, please come with me. My officer wants to talk with you. So yes, they've been caught just before the last minute. And then Tintin finds in the back of Haddock's jacket the bandage. <laughs> so good. It's a nice little... Running gag like that is, is nice. Yeah, and it turns out this isn't a bad thing, you know. Uh, it's like, ah, Captain, it's a great privilege for us. Uh, we in uh, Borduria salute you, hero of the glorious interplanetary flight. Ah, uh, the, you too, uh, Tintin. I'm proud to shake uh, the hand uh, which first set foot on the moon. Yeah, you know what? That's the thing. Yeah. He's the first person who set foot on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's enough reason, by the way, to have a whole bunch of people outside of Marlin Spike. Sure. Period. Yeah. You know, but yeah, very good. Uh, saying the ancient traditions of a Bordinarian hospitality demand that we ensure you absolute comfort and safety. And then he looks down and sees he's got the bandage on his hand. Spluk, what is this? <laughs> I, the bandage is fantastic. It mm-hmm. is my favorite part of this, and I do <laughs> like this story. So anyway, your safety. Uh, two interpreters will therefore accompany you during your stay here. They will take you uh, wherever you wish to go at whatever time. Uh, these gentlemen, uh-oh, chronic and uh, clumsy, uh, <laughs> are entirely at your service. They'll take you to the hotel uh, where rooms are booked for you. I wish you a pleasant stay. Good name for the hotel, the Hotel Schnorr. <laughs> Very nice. Pleasant stay, and then, of course, he gives the, uh, instead of saying Sikail, he says Ami, Amai. Mm-hmm. That's how I imagine it's pronounced. And then we pass the uh, Curvy Tash Platz. Very reminiscent of your typical Eastern European uh communist block country yep. there we have a very much like stalin uh character standing on the uh, standing on a uh plinth i guess in the in the uh plats pointing to the future yep. marshal Crivitash telling everyone in french it wasn't Crivitash, that was an english translation uh erge went with his name is basically it's like plexiglads g-l-a-d-z so kind of a joke on plexiglass rather than the Crivitash, you know Obviously, playing up on that. What I love is that everything you look at in this country has the mustache. Yeah. So the car grill has oh, a mustache. Oh, right. you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. The building with the flags on it flying in the uh, in the uh, Kirvitash Platz is uh, has a mustache on it as a as a decoration. On the hotel, there's yeah. mustaches around the door. The uh, doorways have uh, the mustache on the for the door handle. They do Even, like their mustaches. Yes. The lamps have a. Uh, yeah, it's everywhere you go. Uh, so they're in the hotel, and the captain grabs Tins and says, Quick, quick, hide! It's uh, Bianca Castafiore. But I like that it's an ending to that page, so we yes. we don't know what's coming. We, we're we not sure, and then we turn, we come back next week, we we open our Tintin magazine and discover that, oh, Bianca Castafiore is walking past with her piano player, whose name I believe is Igor. Very nice. And the uh, two guys taking care of them say, oh, did you see her? Oh, Signora Bianca Castafiore, the Milanese Nightingale. Of course, she's uh, in town to sing, be singing uh, Faust. Of course and she is. Of course she is. We've never seen her sing anything else but Faust. Well, she sings it fantastically. Well, I guess, why wouldn't she? Why would she not? Uh, off they go to their, why would she branch out? They get escorted to their uh, rooms, Tintin and the Captain. They hope you'll be comfortable. Uh, and they go, and uh, yep, they're prisoners, all right. Mm-hmm. As, uh, as Tintin says, and make no mistake about it, the fact that we're in a gilded cage doesn't make any difference. Oh, Snowy does say something. Golly, the lap of luxury. Snowy doesn't mind being in that gilded cage. No, he does not. Uh, well, he's an animal. He likes cages. That's right. The Animals fun. love cages. I think we've learned that one thing as humans. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we learned one thing from King Kong. <laughs> um, ring goes the phone. It's the captain. I think you're thinking Mighty Joe Young. Hmm. Uh, well, you know I'm always thinking about Mighty Joe Young. <laughs> so, uh, Tins is on the phone trying to figure out how to give a subtle clue to the captain that the yeah. phone is bound to be tapped. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, the captain refers to the guys they're with as two uh, uh, coleoptera. coleoptera. Yeah. It's like, oh, you mean those butterflies we caught uh, at the, by the lake? No, they're lepidoptera. What are you talking about? All right, I'll try calling them again. Yeah. Uh, don't worry about the butterflies, Captain. Let's talk about this simply wonderful hospitality of this excellent country. What good taste. What tact. And uh, then their um, courtesy, and above all, all the friendliness, friendliness, which is entirely er, friendly. Um, mm. 
And uh, is the captain catching on or not? Yes. Yeah. Then the captain says, 10,000 thundering typhoons. Now I'm going to chuck you out the window. What? Is, What's this all about? Let's turn, tune yeah, in next time. Tune in see. next time we turn and go, oh. what? No blistering barnacles. It's that thundering bit of sticking plaster. It's following me about. <laughs> well, good luck. I'll leave you to sort things out together. But don't forget to go down for dinner in an hour. So then. Uh, yeah, I like that he's, I'll leave you to sort things out together with your sticking plaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then. Uh, Captain, I propose we crack a bottle of champagne in honor of these gentlemen. And of course, the captain, champagne? Why would we, for this gang of ow, Tintin steps on his toe. Poor captain, it must be a rheumatism. Well, there's nothing like champagne for curing that. Will you call the wine waiter? Yep, and uh, the, the guy there says, okay, I'm no fool. You want to make us tight to find out where uh, <laughs> uh, calculus is, but you won't learn a thing. We'll shut up like trams. <laughs> no, like prams. <laughs> like lambs. No, like clams. And so he's getting a little drunk. And yes. Tintin plays it cool. Yep. Says, nah, let's forget the silly old calculus after a couple more drinks. Uh, time for bed. Will you take us up to our rooms? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll just stay in the corridor. Fine. Good idea. Uh, so they go into their rooms. Thump, 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 thump. Uh, you know, a thundering typhoons. He'll rouse the whole hotel. Uh, open the door and see. Eh, you gun? You're not going to bed yet? I just wanted to give you your cap. Okay. Now stay in the corridor i'll be very comfortable uh they put a bed there shut the door <laughs> yes and in doing so they're now free to go that's right yeah because uh they got a little reversey reversey and the guy who thinks he's outside the door Nicely doesn't done. realize that he's inside the door he's that drunk that's right uh but oh tintin spots something so get back it's a couple of goons you know uh and uh, they hide and then uh, go down looks like the fire escape uh but they see that uh, their way out is blocked by two guards what do we do? Uh, I think I've got an idea, uh, says Tintin. All right, Captain, ready? And then we hear a large bang. Uh, the, the guards go to search what the bang is. It's a broken light bulb. Where could it come from? And out they run. Uh, they run into the streets. Uh, Tintin, Snowy, and the Captain. Uh, the guards follow, trying to find them, and they can't. Well, they can, yeah. but uh, what happened, they're running towards the street, and this is a, there was one cut. Uh, that was cut because when they went from reformatting, I guess a couple, there's a couple of cuts, but this one's the most significant to me, which is that the, uh, there was a shot of the, of the light standard with, you know, the row of lights and it goes to, it goes to yellow. Then we see them running across the street and then we cut to the next panel, which is the guards blocked by the traffic starting and now the light's red, so they oh, can't cross okay. the street. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. not that clear, but it's not super clear there. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a little better with the, um, with the traffic signal in, in the in the shot, so now we cut yep, to uh, a meeting. Now we have a man. We don't know who this man is, but he's presenting uh, in front of a television. He's showing. He says, "Gentlemen, we of the high command are assembled today to hear about a remarkable discovery. After protracted research, I like how they're already taking credit for it <laughs> for calculus's research. Berdurian scientists have succeeded in perfecting a weapon that will soon make H bombs and ballistic missiles missiles as obsolete as pikes and muskets." The day is not far off, gentlemen, when this weapon will make the people of Berduria and the glorious ruler, Curvy Tash, masters of the world. To prove this to you, I invite you to give your undivided attention to this screen. So here, challenging the world with its gigantic sky skyscrapers, is a great transatlantic city, which is superfluous to name. Of course, it's New York. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, at our command, this city is doomed. In a few seconds, it will be reduced to rubble. I have only to press this button. So, he presses the button. Then on the screen, we see the buildings vibrating and falling apart as if they were being attacked by an ultrasonic device, such as the one that 
calculus was working now on. these fellas in the audience think this is a real city mm-hmm. they think it is the city yes and they love that this is city is coming down they're so happy they say extraordinary splendid, splendid amazing. amazing oh it was a fantastic day it's like so these guys are all real jerks yes that's right we must keep calm gentlemen and above all we must be patient the great city which you saw disintegrating before your eyes was for the time being no more than this model of glass in China. Yes, I can see the bitter disappointment on your faces. You are sorry not to have witnessed the actual destruction of a real city. Have faith, gentlemen. So yeah, he points says the miniature the city was destroyed by this prototype of an ultrasonic device that uh, obviously was stolen from the professor's laboratory. And uh, he says, in the future, we will have this working at long range. Not only glass in China, but bricks, concrete, and steel will fall at the, at the ultrasonic attack of this device. So yes, we know that we know now why calculus was kidnapped. What they're trying to discover. Then we cut to uh, we cut to uh, Colonel Sponge talking on the phone. He discovers that Tintin and Haddock have escaped, and that they are somewhere in the in the uh, uh, in the area surrounding the opera. opera, So then he says, "Well, I'm going to trot along, and uh, maybe while I'm there, I'll visit the opera." And so we go to the opera. Uh, An hour later, at the opera house, uh, the captain is uh, sound asleep. (laughs) <laughs> at the uh, at the opera, uh, Tins is saying, "Captain, wake up! It's the interval, Captain." And uh, I just want to point out that uh, Snowy's mouth is tied shut so that he can't howl during uh, Casafiore's uh, ah, singing. Ah, very nice. It's also nice they let a dog at the opera. Mm. So, uh, so they're making their way uh, through. Uh, you know, uh, saying uh, they're saying there's less of a chance of being noticed in a crowd, which is true. That's absolutely true. Yes. Uh, so uh, then we see that the uh, Colonel Spons is. Uh, is walking through and being noticed by uh, a lot of the people there, mm-hmm. uh, including Tintin. And uh, Schwann's here, and Calculus's fate depends on that man. Little does he know that he and his two henchmen uh, passed within a yard of us. Uh, they hear a ring. It's the end of the interval. Uh, Captain kind of wants to leave, but uh, no, I think it's better to wait till the end of the show, then we can leave with the crowd. Yeah. So an hour later, this is uh, just what's happening. But it's hopeless. The exits are stiff with policemen. Let's try to slip out through the stage door. They do and run into Casta Fiore. Before we go too much farther, I just want to. One of the interesting changes with the change of the of the of the dimensions is that before they had like a little preci, a little summary, in the top banner along the top of the page, but when they moved to this format, the first panel was dedicated to a summary of what happened last week, mm-hmm. and then every page has a little drawing of something as well that's related to what's going to happen in this. So in this one, for instance, it has a, a concert poster. You know, saying Faust, starring Bianca Costafiore, featuring the tenor E.P. Jacob Beanie. So it mentions E.P. Jacobs there, who actually did sing for the opera when he was younger. Oh, okay. Before he became a cartoonist, he actually tried to become an opera singer. He wasn't successful, but he tried. Uh, so yeah, that was Erja uh, um, having a little bit of fun. And that reminds me of a story. Let me just stop here about All Uncle right. Anatole. Oh, And no. one time... No. Oh, what a bore. Uh, Erge, who had a great sense of humor, was was remarkably susceptible to pranks. And one of my favorite pranks that was played on him by his fellow employees at Studio Erge was they told him, he didn't like opera, he really didn't like, like it at all, but they told him that this famous opera singer was coming to visit the studios. You know, they wanted to come and visit the studios, and they kept pressing, and they kept sending invitations from this person. All these requests were coming in. Uh, Lillian Harvey, this this famous opera singer, who, of course, Ergie didn't know who she was because he hated opera so much, but finally he grudgingly agreed that he would, you know, have a little audience with her. She could come in, you know, she's such a super fan. And so then she finally came. It t- turned out it was Bob Demore dressed as a woman. <laughs> nice. It's <laughs> a good joke. 
So Castafiore recognizes Tintin. From what book did she meet uh, Tintin? But Castafiore? Yes. Was, so the first one was King Ottokar Scepter, so okay. it was in, in And has Solidia. she actually met him since that time? Or was it all just... It also seemed to be on the radio or, or such. Uh, no, uh, this is the first time she meets like Haddock. That's so, yeah. true, yes. Yeah, every other time it's just been... Um, yeah, them hearing her on the radio playing right. or something like that, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, she meets him for the first time thinking he might be a fisherman. Wait, so... But how does Haddock know who she is? It must be part of the... I think she's famous. Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess and that's he's right. heard her on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so she invites them into the dressing room. You know, I can't have my admirers in the passage. I've uh, put on uh, Ma- Marguerite's prettiest gown for you. Come on in. She's very sweet. Yes, she is actually very nice. And and she actually saves their bacon in a few seconds. Yeah, too. she's quick thinking. So Sponge, the chief of police, is there, and she hides them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's nice because they they say they explain to her the situation. I mean, yeah. she could just say, "Oh dear, you are you know illegal, you know, escaping, you're you're something fishy here." But no, she goes, "Oh, what shall we do? Let's here. Wait a moment." She hides them in the in the in the cupboard or in the in the in the wardrobe closet or the. She's seen curtain. some stuff. She's been around. She's fine. Only there's one problem. What's that? The captain has forgotten his cap and spawns sits on it. Where she invites him to sit down, he sits down and he finds the cap there. He goes, oh, I seem to have sat on some sort of naval officer's cap. And uh, Blistering Barnacles says to the captain, that's my cap. But the, she's very quick thinking. She yeah. says, "She says, oh, it's Pinkerton's cap from Ma- Madame Butterfly. I shouldn't say his name, but that's who it would, it would have been, of course. Uh, yeah, the tenor who sings in Madame Butterfly. So he forgot it yesterday. So that's very quick thinking. She put, puts that in the closet. So the captain has his uh, cap. And something I like is that she was originally just kind of a straight comedy relief character. Mm-hmm. You think like she's yeah. a bit of a stiff, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, you know, she's a Margaret uh, Dumont, Dumont, yeah. Yeah. you know, type. But no, she's she's not. Uh, she, her politics are on the right side. She's going to protect these people. And here we go. Let's yeah. get. Let's, we're going to we're going to smuggle yeah. you the heck out of there. That's right. And if you notice behind the captain, you, uh, or sorry, Colonel Spawns, you see uh, the poster that has Jacobini on it. Not the full name, but just the. It is a Jacobini, so. So uh, she invites him for some champagne. He uh, opens it, gets it right in the nose. Good for him. Um, <laughs> well, he does that after he tells the guys come in, they're going to search the dressing room. So that doesn't look good for, for uh, Tintin and, Ka- and Haddock. But, of course, this arrogant fellow's there. So he says, I suppose you think we, you'd find them here, you tender-headed idiots. Go on, get out. A boat turn before I explode. And at that moment, the uh, champagne explodes into his nose. Yep. So ask her to ex- excuse those numbskulls. Uh, and then <laughs> spills the beans on his plan. Yes. And she she uh, cunningly fishes all the information out of him by just being playing along with him. Yeah, as well. like, oh, good idea. Mm, Flattering very him. Good, uh, yes. Very good. That's uh, something wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Professors uh, always wanting the moon. That's right. Oh, yeah, joke. that was a nice little line. Let's yeah. not go... Let's not uh, brush over that too uh, too fast. Where you know she does mention you know uh, you know the the professor wants the moon and uh, he goes oh you're more right than you know yeah that's right it's, it's like nice line. nice little yeah. thing there mm-hmm. uh, but basically yes he has been kidnapped they are trying uh, to uh, what do, what do they want from from the professor well they want him to to give them his plans yes. for these devices but also I imagine to improve them so that they can be used. Uh, for for the destruction rather than I don't know what other use they have ultrasonic devices that can fire destructive rays at a distance what other reason would you have to have yeah and he's going to be staying there until he gives up the plans uh, I hope so for his sake anyway I've signed an order for release in my coat pocket tomorrow he'll have to choose either he gives us the plans or he'll never be heard of again mm-hmm. and uh, I suppose you could use them for like demolition 
you know, Possibly. Like for like, sure. you don't have to explode things. You could use them to direct the rays at various parts of the building and rather have it explode. You could use this to collapse it safely. Yeah. Or blow up the moon, whatever we want to do. <laughs> Um and and but he's what got a moon do to you. He's got a plan here. You know, uh, she's asking like, what happens when he gets home? And he tells the whole story. He's like, okay, wait, I've foreseen that. If we set the professor free, it'll be in the presence of two representatives of the International Red Cross. He'll have to declare in front of them that he came uh, here of his own free will to offer us his plans. And I have passes for these two representatives in my coat. Well, guess who's near the coat right now? Our heroes. Yeah. So let's go to the next morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the fortress of uh, Bakin. Sure, I'll go with that. Uh, where we see uh, two gentlemen from the Red Cross yeah. there to pick up the professor. Uh, but, uh, of course, it is Tintin and the captain in mm-hmm. uh, very funny-looking disguises. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of a business uh, testing their credentials, but they pass. Uh, they get the professor, get out of there. Uh, and that's when, uh, what's his name again? Sorry. Uh, Spawns. Spawns comes in. Uh, and uh, it's like, what? 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 He, they released him. What? What happened? Uh, looks in his coat. <laughs> Couldn't be more upset. Yeah. Uh, That's a very uh, bringing up father face. It is that. a very bringing up father face with uh, the, the monocle flying out in his. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the car is uh, is uh, driving out of the fortress uh, and uh, now uh, chases, uh, chases on. Calculus doesn't recognize uh, his friends yet. Uh, but uh, takes up the glasses, then he does. And all Calculus seems to care about is his umbrella. Even though uh, there's gunfire, the window is uh, is being shot out, uh, motorbikes are behind him, uh, he still just seems to care about this uh, this uh, this umbrella. Yes. And when you say that he's having a normal conversation, really, he's only focusing on one thing. So. That is true. Yeah. So uh, they they release uh, the the hood not hood but the convertible top of the car which lands on the uh, motorcyclists uh, sending them both down into the daisies uh, back to uh, wanting the umbrella uh, driving down the road and they skid and uh, go go down a hill uh, where there is a tank waiting there uh, looks like calculus is unconscious they a little bit him. of classic Tintin driving yep he made it uh, let's see he made it through about. Ten panels before he crashed the car. Yep. Yeah, he's got terrible insurance. Uh, they they carry. The... Well, he is young. Oh, he's. And they young. are they are in that demographic where there's the most car accidents. Sure. Yeah. And I think uh, we... a cartoon characters do have the most accidents. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> um, so uh, the the unconscious uh, uh, calculus is being uh, hid right now by Tintin and uh, and the captain uh, as the gentleman from the tank goes searching. This is the image from the cover. Yes. Uh, and while they search. Their tank gets stolen by uh, by Tintin, who I like uh, says, you know, I haven't driven a tank since our moon trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to which the ca- the captain goes, yeah, I know, we all went to the moon. Yeah, we get it. Okay, keep driving the tank. Uh, there's a roadblock, but roadblock meets tank means roadblock goes down. Yeah. Uh, they keep on driving. Uh, they and uh, now here's a question I've got. There's some guys there with a with a, a gun. Well, let's, I don't know what you'd specifically call that type of gun. Uh, but they're firing it from the side of the road. It blows up, and uh, one says to the other, I, I always told you uh, this uh, makeup gun could be improved. Yeah. Now, those guys look familiar. Are they from a previous story? No. Really? Yeah. Because, boy, they seem like they're from Tintin and the Land of the Soviets. I, I, for some reason, I felt like we've seen like, something similar to that before with like that type of gun. But Yeah. 
Uh, wrong I am. Okay, the <laughs> tank keeps uh, driving. Uh, Captain's going, hooray! Can I just point out that that's a great underside of a car drawing, where they, they look at the smash convertible? Sure, you because can say that. you don't. It's not often that you get that kind of detail of the bottom of the car. Like most people, kind of slough it off really quickly, but they really they know what the bottom of a car looks like. Apparently, fair enough. I'm uh, going to credit Roger Laloupe. Oh, he seems he seems to like doing that. Uh, <laughs> well, I know that he drew the tank through okay, the sequence. Good. So, so calculus is waking up, uh, and uh, the captain says, "It's me, old fellow. We're fr- we're we're safe. Uh, my umbrella. Have you seen my umbrella? Uh, it's a fine time to be worrying about your umbrella." Uh, nonsense, Captain. I'm talking about my umbrella. Surely you can't have lost it. You know, I lost your brawly in Geneva, if you want to know. That's good. I was hoping you hadn't lost it. You see, I hid my drawing. Drawing? Boring? Of course it's not boring. Oh, we're doing this again. Uh, I'm talking about the detailed drawings of my ultrasonic instrument on microfilm. I hid them in the handle of my umbrella. So you see, if you'd lost it, and then Tintin notices mines in the road. Yeah. Yeah. He says mines. Yeah, it's, it's too late. We can't stop in time. We're going to blow up. Once again, Tintin saying, help, help, help. Second time. Not in the French version. All right. Uh, it's more just kind of like, ay, 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 like this kind of yells, like, but, oh, no. But they're all dud mines. Yeah, I think this could have been, I do I do enjoy this sequence, but I think it should have been played up a little bit more in earlier parts of their Bordurian trip. That, that Bordurian, bad weapons. That, well, Bordurian products are bad. Like, yeah. Like, that's kind of the joke, that the communist bloc cannot produce quality merchandise because it's just, their system's inefficient, and so it doesn't allow for for quality. And so, you know, like the mines are bad, the the um, the the uh, the anti tank device devices are bad. Like everything is bad. But it should have been established earlier that, like, say that the we kind of got the phone thing, but the phone should have been bad all the time, not just that one time. Uh, they should have the car should have broken down with when they're going somewhere. Like just things that yeah, you know what I mean. Like set it up, pay it off. Set it up set a little up, bit, yeah. Off. Set it up a little earlier. And they spot uh, then that there's a, a case under uh, the seat in the tank. Yeah. And it's thunder flashes uh, used on exercises. When you light them, they explode with a terrific bang. Oh boy. Oh boy. Great snakes. It can't be true. Says says Tintin. Seemed very happy. Then they come to the frontier uh, where they're cornered this time. Uh, they got a barricade there. Uh, decide there's only one weak spot, the customs house, house itself, so they drive through the house itself. What's uh, weird is there's a tail missing, or a tail pointing in the wrong direction on the next panel. Huh. The cap, it's the captain saying, we're safe, Cuthbert, but actually the tail is pointing towards Cuthbert. So Cuthbert is saying, we're safe, Cuthbert. Oh yeah, you're right, that doesn't make sense, you're right. Uh, the captain relaxes, lighting a match and lighting his pipe, and throws the match. Still has tobacco, although he didn't get, didn't succeed in buying tobacco. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, into the thunder sticks, uh, and then uh, they all blow up inside the uh, tank, Kate, which of course doesn't w- hurt. It's just a loud bang. E- well, but that's the thing, though. Is it? Doesn't it hurt? Well, this it is the question with the explosion in the house as well. These guys should be deaf. Mm. This is not uncommon for them to be. Except in for a, the one guy who's already deaf. This is not the first time they've let off uh, explosives in a in a, in a con- especially snowy who has confined very area. sensitive yeah. ears. I, all of them should be half deaf, or not if not deaf itself. Like they, their ears should be ringing. They should have tintinitis, tintinitis. Get everybody. Uh, yeah, it just seems kind of odd that they come out of this just with a few scuff marks in their faces. Yeah, they, they come out cartoonishly. Yeah, uh, they should have concussion because they set off a concussion bomb inside a enclosed space. Multiple concussion bombs. Yes, that's a box of so those. They should things. have multiple concussions. Yeah. So, anyways, two days later in Geneva, uh, they're looking in the lost property area for an umbrella. Uh, Snowy finds it. Uh, very, very happy, uh, Cuthbert, uh, Cuthbert. And can I just say one last thing before we move on from that? Sorry. That Snowy's awesome? Not that Snowy is awesome, but no. With the tank. The tank, the joke should not have been that, that uh, 
Although it's funny that Haddock sits off some thunder sticks inside the tank. The joke should have been the tank breaks down at that moment. Mm. So the turret falls off or something like that. Yeah. This is the last moment. Or or both of the caterpillar treads undo and the tank just sort of slides to a stop. And then he can set off the, the uh, explosives inside it. Something I like that. I am going to agree with you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, hey, let's open up that uh, the handle to the umbrella and see this microfiche. Gone. Yes, there's no microfilm there. Yeah, where the heck is it? Uh, he's quite certain. Uh, I can't believe it. Well, anyway, let's go back to Marlin Spike. Ooh, a head-on, a head-on view of Marlin Spike? <laughs> yes, indeed. No one has yet been bothered to go to Sivigny and actually take some uh, photographs no, of the side again, of the building. I think, I think you go around the back. It's just a pool full of garbage. Uh, so what a relief to be home again, says the captain. It yes. goes inside and gets hit with a beach ball in the face. Yes. Uh, then trips on a, looks like a train. Mm-hmm. And uh, a bratty kid. Oh, brats. Oh, it, dear. Oh, Daddy, there's a great big man with a beard breaking my toys. Oh, guess who's staying? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Well, we kind of knew, we kind of knew that already. But you didn't know he was staying with his entire family. Oh, that's true. Who have set up a clothesline in the living room with underpants and socks. Isn't that the stripping. most disturbing picture you've ever seen? Yep. Because it feels like that's a really beautiful house that they're wrecking with their clotheslines in the wall. And, and poor Nestor has to be a horsey. Yeah. Oh, and it's just terrible. Uh, yeah, they've uh, they got dart holes in the wall. They're not very good shots with the darts at all. Uh, one kid looks like he's dressed like uh, Pinocchio, but mm. like in a pink outfit. Yes. Uh, I don't even know what's going on with the cat right now. The cat must be just in a, going through a nightmare. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it's a great shot, though, of this uh, terrible family. Uh, then upstairs, uh, here, quickly, it's calculus. He went straight up to his room, turned the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learned that the microfilms are actually there. It's fine. He left them on his bedside table. Yes. Imagine me being so absent-minded. I can't believe it. Yeah. What uh, a he, thing. He decides to uh, to burn them, and as the captain is lighting his pipe... By the way, this seems all to be don't smoke. <laughs> Every time the captain starts to smoke, he gets hit by a car. Something blows up. Yeah. It hurts his face. Sure. Don't smoke is what this is yeah. saying. Uh, he, he, it's a good lesson. He tries to light the uh, the microfilm. Uh, he does light it. Well, oh, that's right. He tries and succeeds, uh, but also succeeds in setting up a big flare that like burns the captain's face <laughs> and, his uh, and his beard. I, li- I like the singed hair. Yeah, and uh, his ten thousand thundering typhoons. But that is that is Go good. Ahead. I mean, we have a. It's kind of a sentimental moment here. Yep. It could be kind of mawkish. It's this moment of where he says, you know, I I know I'm a scientist, but some discoveries should not be shared. Yes. You know, this is too dangerous a discovery to to be put out into the He's world. He's that kind of scientist. We're living in the 50s. You know, it's ni- in 1953, the Soviet Union were finally were able to steal the plans for the atomic bomb from America and were able to make their own. And so we now have this, this you know, the kind of the arms race is just starting. And so this is kind of, kind of relates to that time period uh, very much, actually. And the idea that here's a scientist who says, you know what, not all science should be not every discovery needs yep. to go out there so everyone can use it to murder each other. I'm going to I'm going to burn it. You know, it's very it's a very good moment, but you know, it's it's kind of tempered by the fact that he also sizzles the captain's uh, face and hair. To at which point the captain calls him a flaming jack in the box. <laughs> yes. To which uh, replies chicken pox at your age. Goodness, chicken pox. That's very serious. Uh, <laughs> Runs into a jolly on wag. Yeah. Uh, who says the cat tells him the captain has chicken pox? 
Ha ha, then he better go live in a hen coop. Ha ha, chicken pox. Wait, that's very infectious. Uh, we better go. So uh, he leaves uh, with his angry family. Yes. It looks like he spanked his son because his son is rubbing his butt. Yeah. Uh, the, he's leaving with an arrow through his hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrible family, all crying, screaming, uh, horrible, horrible people. So you go like, listen, let me tell you something about this wag guy. Yeah. He's got a bad life. <laughs> so you don't, you know, maybe you feel yeah. sorry for him. And then I like that the last shot is a, a very happy Snowy and the cat. Yeah, they are their friends now because they had a common enemy. Sure. With this horrible wag family, <laughs> who have now left. And just to back it up a little bit, uh, it's it's a good payoff for for Calculus's deafness in this scene as well. Yes. It actually has like a nice payoff. It's not an annoying back yep. and forth. It's just a good misunderstanding that. So don't you that, expect it, at some point one of them's still going to have that little plaster on them? Just picture like that sure. plaster is going to come yeah. back. It should have been like one last thing, yeah. like it's just at the bottom I think of the page. You know where it is now. Where's that? Uh, Mr. Bird has it on him. <laughs> where is Mr. Bird? Where is he? Okay, listen. So, that's okay. Th- that's something I want to throw out for our message board. Yeah, is like every as 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 you might know, Mr. Bird is one of the villains who's yeah. gone missing. Yes. Uh, why don't you let one us of know? One the Bird Brothers. Right. Why don't you let us know where you think Mr. Bird was in this story? Yes, maybe right. he was somewhere in the story. Yeah. You know, if we like where you say uh, mm-hmm. he was, maybe we'll send you a button or something. So there was know. a there was a guy in here that I thought was a returning character. Uh huh. I thought he was a character that we've seen in the past that yep. was returning, but it wasn't him. I looked looked him up, but it wasn't okay. him. And who was we'll, that? We'll see him next time. So I won't say who he was. All right. Fair enough. We'll see him next time. Um. Overall thoughts ahead. of this book. Overall thoughts. Uh, it was, it's interesting. It's a very, okay, the only negative I would give it is it's a bit wordy. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's more, uh, text in this, I think, than any other story I've seen so okay. far. Uh, I think it was a nice one to do after Explorers on the Moon. Yeah. It really is grounded down to earth. Uh, there's good emotional stakes with, uh, with calculus. You really yeah. want to yeah. find their friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some, some good, uh, business with all the shattering glass. I like. Wag, yeah, uh, that was a good character that yeah. was introduced. So yeah, I think this was a very the, strong story. The miscalling to cuts, uh, yeah. the butchers. They're good. all working together. They're figuring mm-hmm. stuff out logically. There's not yeah. a lot of things that happen uh, just out of luck. Sure. And some of the things that irritated you before about calculus, like his deafness, his deafness returns. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he no longer needs his hearing aid because he's not involved in the Moon Project anymore. So right. he's only hard of hearing. He's not totally a deaf. A little hard of hearing. Just in a little one hard ear. of hearing. That's right. So he doesn't really need that now. So he gets rid of that. He's back to normal. But it's not. It's not to an irritating degree. Right. It's not to the. It's not to the. What irritated you in Red Rackham's Treasure, which was a lot of back and forth with, well, here's, with Haddock. Here's and what it feels calculus. like. Oh, and it's tough to say. Like here's what I think is a missing scene. Is like you have a thing where the villain is saying we're interrogating him mm. now. Okay, that's that would have been yeah. that would have been good. Yeah, you got a guy who can't be interrogated. Mm-hmm. Let's see that. Yeah, that would have been good. I, I agree with you. That that would be a good sequence. I mean, you don't miss it, but now that you said it, it would be a good sequence to have in there. But at the yeah. same time, if you did a film of this, and I wish if they were doing, if they're going to pull from more books, I, I hope they they use yeah. this book. Just the just the thing with a bit of pla- uh, the bandage alone would be great. Yeah, yeah. Just, that just keeps coming back and coming well, back and the, coming back. Because what's good about that sequence is that it it um. You have some some exposition happening, so we're explaining how they know that Cal- Cal- Haddock and Tintin are coming, and we and we kind of comedy that up a little bit with the with the the phone that doesn't work quite properly, but then you've got that inter inter 
spurs with the with the banded sequence. It really works well. well it's other, very well done. The other thing that's nice about that, that's nice to do in an action movie, is to give you something tactile so that you're you're feeling it. Like you you know what it feels like to have a bandage on your finger mm-hmm. that you're pulling off. You know that yeah. stickiness and it's still sticking. You're trying to shake it off. It's yeah. like yeah. in the movie Die Hard, something they do off the top is they have him uh, take off his shoes and, and, and go on his carpet and scrunch his toes. Yeah. So later when he's stepping on glass, yeah. you know what it's like for him to walk on a soft carpet. Yeah. Now he's walking on glass. Ugh! It disturbs you more than it would if we hadn't set that up. And so when you've got something small and tactile, it grounds the characters. So when we're having action scenes later, then you're more into it. They're not just cartoony, broad, I can shake off anything. You've now made them a lot more yeah. uh, physical and real. And it's real, a, yeah. just a good little device to use in, in stories like this. Sure. But uh, there's some beautiful, beautiful drawings in this. The driving through the market is fantastic. Yeah. The action scenes, uh, the chase scenes are really great in this. The mm-hmm. driving into the water is really good. The scene outside Marlin Spike with every the whole the whole town and the, yes. apparently the whole city coming out to film this mysterious event right they do two similar scenes which is like uh regular folks uh crashing at the rich guy's place yeah and so you've got one where it's outside and it's like it's not a shanty town it's a, it's like a festival is set yeah up it's like a little carnival outside. Yeah. yeah and then you've got the family later uh in in the mansion itself mm. which you could have had too much duplication in that but you don't it's yeah. very it's very differently played and uh, yeah, both, both very, scenes work. very economic and it's a good story as well it's a good storyline it has a believable you know, believable MacGuffin in right. in the ultrasonic device that kind of end, is the engine of the plot, but not necessary. Yeah. And then you know, well, it is sort of necessary because you get the bro- the glass breaking stuff, which is very interesting. And then you've got, but you have the kidnapping of calculus, like as you say, which adds a really good level of tension to the story. I think if you did it as a film, though, you'd need something else on top of this mm-hmm. for spectacle. Like it's. Uh, this yeah. would not be well, the book that you give someone first. Like this is not your but first. But it's like all, all the f- the film the film that came out re- the most recently. I mean it it exploits three different books. True. And it adds a lot of its own set pieces to right. it as well. But it's got so. the spectacle of it's the sea and this and like you yeah, know. But this has some spectacle too. I mean it's got mountains with tanks and you could have a lot of stuff going on with more tanks. True. You know, and more more disa- and more problems with. And there's stuff a lot of and, good car chases. That's mm-hmm. true as well. But if yeah. you don't know. Uh, the character of Calculus, and yeah. you don't know how much the captain cares about him, yeah. and Tintin as well, but Captain yeah. really cares well, about him. They'll set that up in the next films, I think, because Calculus has to come in in the next films. Right. So they'll have the Red Rackham's treasure kind of stuff happening in the next mm-hmm. sequence. And but so they can c- combine Red Rackham's treasure with the Calculus affair and right. kind of s- arc that over if they want. But you're starting you know? off with, which is a good place to start in a movie. Or Although I think, the, the, I think Destination Moon and... Uh, I think the moon stories would be better to do yeah, next. It, actually. Yeah, you got it. Okay, but but with this, what I'm saying is like you're the you got a bit of a character arc for the captain, which is yeah. I'm done. I'm yeah. done with action. I'm done with adventure. Yeah. Well, what's going to pull you back? Your best friend's kidnapped. Sure. Done. That yeah. uh, that gets you back in the game, mm-hmm. and we're we're on board. Here we go. But I don't know if that works if you don't know who the you know calculus is, and you don't know that these characters care about each mm-hmm. other. You know, so yeah, this would not be your first Tintin story for yeah. me. But if you're into Tintin and you've read a couple of them in a row, like I have, uh, <laughs> it's a really good one. Yeah, I think it's a really good story. It's one of my favorites, actually. I have to I say. I think you have uh, said it's your favorite. I have not said it's my favorite. Oh, okay. I said it's one of my favorites. Very good. My favorite is coming up. Understood. So Interesting. We'll, we'll get there yet. Uh, why don't you uh, write to us and let us know what you thought of the book? Uh, or. You know, anything. Uh, we're at SneakyDragon.com. Yes. That's our We'd message We'd love to board. hear your comments. Love to read them. Yeah. I know I don't always answer. You usually I, do. I always read them. Yeah. You, you almost always them. answer them, oh, too. Oh, okay. 
uh, but maybe you won't. I feel future. like I feel like I don't always answer them. Okay. Or maybe I just kind of give a summary answer to everybody at the end. Now that you've all said something, yeah, me to say it's all thanks, pals. <laughs> uh, if you want to email us, we're at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. That's sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. We're totally Tintin on Facebook. That's yeah. kind of apparent, I suppose. That's makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, if you want to go on Twitter, we haven't really maintained our Twitter very well, but we're yeah. at sneaky underscore dragon. If you fight your way through the cobwebs, <laughs> then you will see there. Yeah. But yeah, we do enjoy hearing from you. And uh, if you have a chance uh, and can give us a review on iTunes, that helps us. Just, you know, whatever star level you think is appropriate. And if you want to write a review, holy smokes, that's a nice thing to do. And yeah, that the, helps people to find the us. The more the merrier. The also, more reviews we get, the more the show gets out there. Here's the other thing that helps the show get out there. If you hit subscribe, that's something easy peasy. Click on the subscribe button. That also helps uh, things get recognized. So, you know, we're just saying, if you feel like doing that, great. If you don't... Well, it's your funeral. That's Wait, right. Wait, that's not right at that all. That doesn't seem very funny. What a terrible thing to have said on that. <laughs> the end anyway, of the show. Uh, if you got it's your else? funeral pyre. <laughs> Is there anything else to say before we wrap up? No, I think we should let everyone know that uh, next time we'll be talking about... The Red Sea Sharks. The first Tintin book I read. Oh, is that right? Yep. Nice one. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm looking forward to this one. Okay, very good. I actually look forward to all of them, actually. Yeah. As soon as we're done all this, I'm like, I can't wait to get to the next one. Excellent. Uh, But if you want to get on board with that first, read it in advance, The Red Sea Sharks. You'd think that taking something you love and turning it into a homework project every week would Mm -hmm. would take the shine off of it, but no. Well, what we're going to do afterwards is we're going to review all the members of your family. See if uh, that uh, takes some people you love, and uh, we'll just review them one person a week. I like that idea. I, I, I would <laughs> like to talk about them like that, actually. That sounds okay, good. Okay, you run that idea by them and I see will. how that goes. Yep. And if you want to hear more of our voices... But Fantastically not ta- family. ...but not talking about uh, uh, Tintin, maybe there'll be some Tintin, uh, Sneaky Dragon is our other podcast. And if you want to hear us talk about the Beatles, still on iTunes is our uh, Completely Beatles podcast where we went through every one of the Beatles albums. Yep. So Start with your favorite and then work backwards and forwards. <laughs> yeah, there. Or any way you want to. It's your business how you yeah, listen to things. True enough. Uh, thank you so much. I've been Ian Boothby. And I've been David Edwards. And as always, thank you for your kind attention. Take care.